with me if you want to live. Come with me if you want to live. I'll be back. Get away from her, you bitch! That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over! You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. Gosh, she's got the most incredible body and a pair of titties make you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk. Ass like a ten-year-old boy. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski. Ah, since the last episode came out just days ago, I'm skipping the usual monologuing intro this time around. Because my guest and I, we have a lot to talk about for a couple hours here. And that guest is also someone you heard just a few episodes ago when we talked about the films of 1986. And, of course, he is the host of his own movie podcast, Movie Madness, which you can hear over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Please welcome none other than the king of the podcast, Mr. Eric Childress. Oh, you're setting me up for a fall already, sir. (laughs) Oh, but thank you very much. Very kind introduction. Yeah, well, you you don't quite have the ginormous ego that James Cameron has, but... I don't think so. I mean, I like to think myself as kind of ego-free. You know, I I do delight in when, you know, proving people wrong when they can be proved by facts. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I don't think I have some sort of, some ego to bruise, as Spock might say. Mm, Very, very good, yes. Um, I'm I'm sensing a little bit of a pattern, though with the kind of directors you've been on the show for. I am too. Christopher <laughs> Nolan, Robert Zemeckis, Spielberg, yeah. and now James Cameron. Yeah, they kind of, in, in many ways, the, the directors of my youth and a, a director of my adulthood. Not mm. that either of the, these other three, uh, including Cameron, have gone away. Cameron disappears for years at a time. But That's true. Uh, the, the all of these directors are they're they're really a part of my movie history, and they're they're directors that I absolutely cherish. Yeah, I mean, on this show, I've I wouldn't say I try to I try to actively focus on the more cerebral directors or the types of films that are less about uh, spectacle and action set pieces. Mm-hmm. However, I know you've made the argument. Um, briefly during the 1986 episode that something like aliens in in your in your mind does take a little bit more care and consideration than something a little more cerebral like blue velvet um you know i would say that they just operate on different levels and tap into different parts of the brain when it comes to crafting them but is it safe to say that you just prefer the spectacle experience of escapist entertainment no, I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't want to reduce it to something as, as simplistic as that. Well, the argument that I was making on on the '86 podcast is that you know, I mean, the idea of ranking films and listing films, although it's you know, it's a goofy little hobby that we all have, and sure. some of us as critics, you know, are predisposed to do them at the end of the year, or sometimes a couple times a year. Uh, you know, ranking films is kind of a futile gesture, right? Because, like you just said. 
it, you're kind of matching different types of films up against each other. It's one thing to create a list of, say, like the 50 best comedies. Okay, mm-hmm. you're 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 ranking a, a specific genre up against each other, and what each film does individually better than, say, other movies. It could just be something as specific as making you laugh harder or longer or more, or because it does have a more of a cerebral cerebral quality to it. Uh, so, you know, to rank, you know, something like Aliens versus Blue Velvet, it's not so much that I prefer the spectacle. When I'm considering, you know, what film I think is better, okay, and and everyone has their own criteria for doing this. Yeah. I tend to think that these movies are harder to pull off in a way. I mean, you can consider, you know, how, I mean, The, the Summer is a perfect example of that, just how many films, whether it be sequels or original entities, uh, you know, try to either create the new a new franchise or just, you know, to do something that either has been done before or they're attempting to do something new. So few of them are pulled off to such an exceptional degree that we'd be talking about them, say, 30 years later. No, that's, that's you know? very true. And so it's not to, you know, to put, you know, say, like, you know, whether it be a Star Wars versus a, you know, uh, I don't know, your broadcast news or something like that, or uh, Blue Velvet versus Aliens, you know, all these types of films, you know, are all worthy of merit. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I tend to think that a movie like, say, Aliens or Jaws, uh, these, these are movies that are, they're, they're so much more difficult to pull off than, say, a quiet period drama pure chamber piece you know mm-hmm. um not to say that those aren't difficult to pull off because we see how many of those fail too. movie i mean a, a great movie is difficult to pull off by just any criteria yeah so i just think that sometimes when you're combining so many elements there's more to there's more to fail you yeah know? That, no that would make sense i mean it's it's just as you can simply look at one of the making of Terminator specials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you find out that it takes them six months to film the movie. Uh, and they spent, what, a year trying to perfect the liquid metal CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, just that, the meticulousness of putting all that together, it deserves recognition and attention not just like at oscar time with special effects awards and things like that but i think people need to give them credit um just as much as they would like a prestige picture but just there's different strengths going on and i think that the spectacle has its place in film history clearly i mean you mentioned Jaws. That's a movie that happens to work on every level and fire on all cylinders. Like, right. it, it remains probably my favorite kind of quote-unquote summer blockbuster escapist film. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not just, you know, great entertainment that's tension-inducing and really gets under your skin. It's also a hangout movie with this, you know, this ragtag collective of experts. Right. Uh, determined to accomplish uh, a mission. And, you know, similar to, like, Aliens. I love just watching a group of people come together to try and defeat a common enemy, which is essentially how James Cameron 
uh, built his career mm-hmm. with with the types of stories he chose to tell. I think it's just for me personally. I would probably put on something like Paris, Texas, or All the Real Girls before I would put on Predator or Die Hard, even though they are all like five star movies. Yeah. <laughs> see, that, see the, the, now there's where we kind of defer. <laughs> yeah. I would much rather put on whether it be a comedy or something, you know, a spectacle, a good spectacle. I'd rather put one of those on than put, you know, than just put on a quiet little chamber piece. Mm-hmm. You know, I I love watching those types of movies. But if I'm going to, say, kill time, pass the time, or just something I want to watch with people, uh, well, I'm going to put on, you know, something big. Like, I'm not going to erect my, uh, my screen outside uh, and put on Paris, Texas. Well, it's a beautiful movie. It is a beautiful movie. <laughs> it is a beautiful movie. Yeah. It's funny that, um, just going back to the last episode with uh, Repo Man, I hadn't realized they were shot by the same cinematographer came out the same year <laughs> and both star Harry Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's also interesting just how Repo Man sort of taps into um, you know, Cold War parano- paranoia and Reaganomics to some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more in the background. And, you know, something like Aliens. You just never think about it when you're watching this as, as a kid as it being... You know, obviously, you can ascribe the fact that it's a war movie, but it has allegorical content going on with it being a parable about Vietnam. Most certainly, which yeah. is something I didn't pick up on. You know, the first couple times I saw it when I was younger, but well, it's right uh, there, and it's right there in the tagline for you—the yeah. tagline that James Cameron came up with himself. This yep. time, it's war. Exactly. So let's start at the beginning, though. Because uh, that's normally how this goes now. Toronto <laughs> to the spawning it is. Okay. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, it, had to, it had to be brought up. Of course. I mean, he first landed a job as a Hollywood art director, set builder. You know, he created some of the designs for some Roger Corman's films, like Battle Beyond the Stars. Mm-hmm. Um, Galaxy of Terror. Yep, Galaxy of Terror. He was the second unit director. Um, you know, he, 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 he got his big break when just producers were noticing how he goes the extra mile and he'd come up with these really inventive, clever ideas for these very low-budget films. Um, so it's, it's clear early on that, uh, you know, he had this ambition, this uh, need to tell a bigger story and go beyond just second-unit director or set builder. He had a bigger vision. Unfortunately, his first film... I mean, we're not going to really talk about it at length. Because I know he has a credit as the director on the film, but he was replaced after two weeks by the Italian producer and doesn't even consider it to be his first film. Right. Show me, show me, show me all those cool effects The one where T-1000 stands John Connors Hugger's 
pretty god awful. <laughs> yeah, it's it, you know I I mean I couldn't talk at length about Piranha Two: The Spawning. No. Um, one, for one reason, I I don't remember if I saw all of it, frankly, because uh, it, it was bad enough being scared of Piranha as a kid, mm. let alone ones that could fly. Like the only the only thing I really the only two things I really remember about Piranha Two: The Spawning was one the really sort of really bad special effects of the flying piranha, uh, and two Lance Hendrickson throwing down a flying a, well you know a piranha with wings a carcass down on the ca- counter and the, my my favorite my only line I remember from the movie the fuckers can fly <laughs> Lance Hendrickson ladies and gentlemen <laughs> uh, but I I find it interesting when you think about it. Piranha and Piranha 2 were directed by Joe Dante and James Cameron. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, right? Yeah. Two directors who would go on to make much more substantial works. Yes, yes two of my favorites. And it's going to be great because, like, in, in late September, I'm going to dive into some Roger Corman's films. Uh, he's got so many. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting Bucket of Blood because I remember really loving that one. Certainly. But, yeah, it's... <sighs> It's funny because because that movie just wasn't a success in any capacity, and when it was taken away from him, he felt really awful. Um, and the stress of the whole experience actually led him to having like a fever dream or essentially a nightmare about an intricate metal skeleton that was rising from the fire like a phoenix. And this dream would serve the genesis of what be- what would become his first true feature film debut. That's right. The Terminator. I'm here to help you. I'm Reese, Sergeant Tetcock, BN38416, assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. I had known of The Terminator from, I think, probably Siskel and Ebert. Uh, I think I had heard, heard of it. Uh, I'm... I'm positive I heard of it because I remember seeing a clip of the scene where they're running from Tech Noir and he punches through the window of the car. Mm-hmm. They, they, that's a clip they showed on Cisco Neighbor. I can't remember who liked what and whatever, but uh, whatever it came on a video nine months later or whatever, I was with my grandparents and uh, usually my my dad would you know, take me to the, to the video store, but this time uh, my grandparents, it was this whole uh, day I had with my grandparents where we went to this computer shop and I think we went to an amusement park and stuff and then they took me to the video store and the one movie I, I wanted to see that I knew was out was The Terminator and my, my grandma asked me what it was about and I remember telling her this is how I described The Terminator to my grandma uh, it's about this robo- robot that comes back from the future to shoot a pregnant lady <laughs> Not the best explanation, you know. <laughs> did that sell her on it, though? It didn't. It didn't. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it it, it worked out in a, in a sense because we did re- end up renting Starman that day. Oh, nice. So, so you know, silver lining and all. But, uh, you know, telling, your, you know, your grandmother that you want to see a movie about a robot's come back to kill a pregnant woman. Uh, that, you know, that didn't, that, that you know didn't work out too well so but i did eventually get to see the, the terminator and it, it, it played like a horror movie to me and, you know it's considered an action movie it's considered a science fiction movie but i always looked at it as a horror movie you know it's it's it, you know it's michael myers it's jason Voorhees, just in robot form with a lot of firepower hunting down you know a woman it, it's a it's a movie that really scared me i, I loved it 
uh, but it but it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, it's it's essentially a stalking slasher kind of film. You're right, mm-hmm. and you know my first experience was renting it from the video store. Uh, I want to say it had like a clamshell box for its cover, maybe. Yeah. And um, yes, yes, it did. Okay, and yes. it was just the image. It was a thorn EMI box. Right. Okay. Yeah, and it was just the image of the Terminator in those sunglasses with a gun up. The gun on, yep. Yep. With the laser sighting. And I was completely sold. And, I mean, I, I think I might have seen this around 86 or 87, because I remember experiencing both this for the first time as well as The Hidden. Okay. And both films, I mean, The Hidden has kind of more of a darker sense of humor going on at times. Sure. But uh, I, I just, like, I think it was the slimy, weird alien thing uh, that you get to see later in the film that gave me nightmares, along with The Terminator and Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> I think it was, it was either, I think it was Roger Ebert that described The Hidden as Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets The Terminator. Oh, really? I'm pretty, it was one of them. I think it's on, uh, on, <laughs> on the box, actually. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, I was so affected by the original. Um, you know, it's just a pure, visceral experience in every sense of the way. I uh, I also just like how he opens this film. He sort of sets the scene with only essentially nine shots, and three of which are brief inserts. Um, and, you know, the, the, this... The sight of the apocalypse essentially lasts more than a minute, and you know it, there is obviously some some prologue with phrases like nuclear fire and final battle and all these things, but it sort of sets you up um, to expect something uh, intense is going to take place here, um, and I think it's again he's very economical in the same way that. Um, Zemeckis opens up Back to the Future, where he, he, he gives you all of this information about something that you may or may not get to see, but it's sort of setting you up in a very direct way. I mean, Zemeckis doesn't use any sort of prologue kind of voiceover stuff, but I think, it, I think it works here. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the true spirit of like indie film, if you're doing like a, you know, a thriller of the, this sort... I think even you know if you look at movies today that you know attempt to do something, you know, a, a, a story along the lines of sort of a, a heavy science fiction sort of plot like the Terminator is, you know, they wouldn't maybe they wouldn't have the money or they wouldn't have the know-how to create a sequence like the apocalypse stuff that opens the Terminator because, like you said, that really it sets the entire mood of the piece. There, there's mm-hmm. there's a darkness to it. There's a holy crap. This is what you know, could become, you know, it, it, it would be a lot different if we just had the Reese, the Kyle Reese speech where he tells her all of this. Uh, and it's one of those cases where, you know, if you want to learn how to do exposition, you know, there's, there's one, that's one way to do it where it doesn't sound, you know, as long as the exposition is interesting, it doesn't feel like exposition. You right. Know? That's, Especially that's always been my argument for inception. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, it's a good argument too. And so, so, but so when Kyle Reese is explaining all this stuff, you have these images in your head 
already. Mm-hmm. Which you know, film being a visual medium, you know, it's not like a you know book where you need to you know piece this together yourself. You have this these images in your head, and you immediately understand the stakes that are involved for him keeping her alive. Right. Uh, and like you said, he does it very simply. He, he gives it a, f- a few shots. The special effects still look pretty decent today. And and, and he, he has some dream sequences down the road that, that uh, revisit those scenes. Uh, I think the, they were, I think one of those was like a reshoot, I think, where they had yeah, some money think, to do right. like the extra dream sequence. I have to look that up. But but yeah, but I mean, this is here was a film that was preying upon a lot of my fears as a child. Now, of course, I'm nine, ten years old. I shouldn't be watching a movie like The Terminator, probably, but I was. And you know, so a film that preyed upon my fear of being chased and hunted down and killed, and then throw the nuclear holocaust on top of all of that. Ugh. And it's you know, I mean, I you know was a child of war games and the day after and mm-hmm. these movies, and it, and so it was absolutely terrifying. So yeah, so every bit of you know, I didn't think of Terminator as an action film for a long time. Yeah, there's definitely action sequences, of course, and uh, I mean, you mentioned exposition too. I also love the fact that expository dialogue is included during a chase sequence. For the most part, I mean, they they do wind up sitting in the parking garage, and yeah, you know, he, right. he explains some things that, during that moment. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I think him saying something like "it will not stop ever until you are dead" yeah. is not. I mean, it's not diminished by inserting it into a chase scene. It makes it more immediate and just like you're just thrown in there. You're and she's thrown literally. She's thrown into the situation too. Right. So we sort of get to experience what what she's. Well, it's experience. always great when you have a, a film like this where you you know you don't understand everything that's going on and you just you're witnessing stuff for about a half hour of film mm-hmm. before th- that half hour is then explained to you. That's that's always a really fun. Yeah, it's building part. a mystery. Yeah, it builds this mystery like Sarah McLaughlin, <laughs> and it. Uh, and then, then you get all the exposition and whatnot, and then you can then you can sort of sit back in your chair and relax, not relax, but go forward and you're in the game you're 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 right in the game you're in it with these characters and it's i mean it's a it's an hour 45 minute chase picture you know essentially right and and that's you know god knows we like those movies mad max fury road so duel yeah duel (laughs) yes joyride i actually really like joyride i like joyride too yeah joyride's funny it sure is and I, I, Steve Zahn's Steve Zahn's got to come back at some point. Uh, well, he's he's been around. Okay. Uh, I am I am looking at the the DVD of the Hidden, by the mm-hmm. way, and right on the front, Roger Ebert, Siskel and Ebert, a cross between Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Terminator. Nice. Yeah, that's the Hidden. Great movie if you have if you have anyone hasn't seen that. Yeah, they would make for a great double feature. Oh, please, <laughs> absolutely, it would. Another moment that still gives me the chills to this day is the police station invasion. Um, I mean, obviously, before that actually happens, we get the classic line uh-huh. and everybody knows and it just became I'll be back. forever will always be what Arnold Schwarzenegger is known for. Uh, and people will hunt him down just to say the line practically right. on the streets. But there is really something terrifying about, well, as long as I'm with the police, I'm safe, right? Yeah. And you're not. 
you know, the Terminator systematically hunts down and executes everyone there, practically. And he does it with this indifference, like, oh, it doesn't matter that they're cops, they're just other people in my way to get to, to, get to Sarah. So um, I think that moment is still really, really tense. Yeah. I mean, just um, forget the cops for a second. I mean, the cops are like the you know, like the border wall in a way. Just, I mean, they're you're inside this building. First, right. you to, first you have to find her. So you, you think that the Terminator is not going to be able to find uh, find her, and then he does. And then it's there's you know, I mean, not to bring up you know current events you know too much, but there is there there was something scary about that back then because one of the things that you always see in movies, and it's, it's a cliche, but I'm sure it's true in real life too, is that if someone hurts or killed a police officer, every police officer would be on that case yeah. to, to find this person who who, who harmed or killed uh, one of their own. And, you know, now we, and so when you see this machine just indifferently wipe out an entire squadron of police officers, you know, you like you said, you think you're safe amongst them, and I you think it's a, it's a scare, really scary thing when people think that they can kill police officers, and you know, there used to be. I mean, even the mafia don't did want them killing police officers, no matter how bad the heat right. got. You just stay away. Don't you can't if you kill a police officer, then they're all going to be down our throats. Okay, so just leave them alone. They'll they'll, they'll let them harass us. And, you know, we'll deal with it when we need to deal with it, but don't kill them. And it's also interesting because it sets up the retaliation that the cops want to accomplish in the second film. When he, when the, when the police officer goes to visit Sarah in the mental institution, you know, they bring that up. They bring up the fact that the other Terminator, the bad Terminator, Mm -hmm. bad Arnold from the first one, is responsible for all these deaths of, of fellow police officers. So that sort of sets up like this whole other layer for the sequel, um, right? But how did I didn't I didn't kind of look for this. I sort of thought um, about this after the fact, after I rewatched it. But I'm obviously the doctor survived because <laughs> he's in the second one. Well, he walks out of the walks out of the building. Oh, okay, I he missed walked, that. Yeah, the, the uh, psychiatrist uh, Earl Bowen, the actor. Right. Uh, he he walks out just as Arnold walks in, and it's one of the it's one of these oh. little things that Cameron does where he actually looks down on his beeper, so he's actually not looking at Arnold coming in, so he never sees him come into the building, and then he walks out. Gotcha. What can I say about Linda Hamilton's arc too? Obviously because we've seen the sequel and we know what happens to Sarah Connor. It's Mm -hmm. interesting just going back to see her, um, not necessarily as the damsel in distress because she does take control, show some authority, obviously when she has to, once, Mm -hmm. uh, Reese is injured. Yes. But, um, it's, it's just a great character that you have an emotional investment with Mm -hmm. through and through. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I was actually thinking of, like, um, the first Evil Dead, like, you know, Ash is just kind of a wuss, and just, yeah. he's sort of passively watching things happen, but then in the second one, he's a badass and wants to take charge. Um, it's very different characters, very different films, but it was just something I... Uh, my brain went to for a second there, but... Well, certainly, I mean, and you can look at the, you know, the way, the arc of Sarah Connor, as you call it, 
is in many ways sort of the arc of a lot Cameron's you know sort of career with leading female action stars Ripley <laughs> I mean well, th- 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 you can go through the entire list and every one of his uh, lead female characters has a strong arc whether they're they're tough at the beginning or they're going to rise to the occasion by the by the end of the film all of them have this steely-eyed determination and you know it's no secret you know obviously that he was you know married to Gail Ann Hurd who clearly has that kind of reputation herself as well very mm-hmm. a very important uh, strong female presence in Hollywood production going back to the Terminator and all the way up to now to the Walking Dead she's she's been a force all this time uh, and even though and even though Cameron see, divorced just about ever, anyone he he married. Yep. Um, his the women in his movies were never a reflection of his of whatever personality attitudes he might have had towards you know his marriage. You know the all you know Ripley and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in the Abyss. She starts off as they you know they call her a cast iron bitch uh, in, in the movie, and then you, you know Terminator Two. You get to that. Uh, you know, look at Jamie Lee Curtis and True Lies. The mousy character who then has to, you know, you know, wants a little bit of adventure in her life, and eventually, you know, starts, you know, sparring with Tia Carrera in the limo. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of, you know, even you know, I'm not crazy about Avatar, but that's, you know, that that character, she's a warrior. Sure, so yeah. character is a warrior. So there, Angela there, Bassett in Strange Days, even though another yeah. another great example. You know, these this is an important. Uh, part of sort of the evolution of the female action hero, uh, at least character, you know, strong female characters that this one director had made it, has made it a point throughout his career to include in all of his pictures. And he didn't do it just because he was trying to be different. He didn't do it for some sort of measure of diversity or to show that it could be. It just it it just seemed natural to him. That these characters yeah. would evolve the way that they do, you know. And you can go back. I mean, Alien, and Aliens. I mean, Ripley, and you know, in that first movie. If people had listened to Ripley in the first movie, none of this would have happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if they would have just let her, you know, told when she she's telling them not to uh, let Kane back on board the ship because of quarantine. None, none of this, none of the movies happen. Right. Movies right. end. Well, we yeah. still might have gotten Prometheus. So, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's a little bit sad because I mean I think Cameron does take a lot of uh, thought and and consideration and compassion for pretty much all of his characters I would say, and then of course something like Alien Three comes around because I mean he he genuinely cares about the relationship between Ripley and Newt, mm-hmm. and to sort of just divest that completely from the third film really leaves it cold and sad to watch it's it's one of the it's it's the primary reason i hate alien 3 so much yeah uh i i've not you know there are there are people that defend that movie and i i i can't bring it to myself to even watch the film again because the opening of that movie leaves me so sour mm-hmm. the fact that everything that cameron put these characters through these characters that we grew to really like by the end of Aliens, and the, 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 the central relationship of that entire movie uh, between Ripley and Newt is shattered in an opening scrawl, right. essentially. And the minute that happens, and you take away all the, you know, all, all of the uh, sort of nutrients, you know, if you will, that 
funneled uh, Ripley, uh, funneled her arc, basically. I mean, Newt was a huge part of that arc because she didn't, it became less about revenge at that point and more about I have something to protect now. You know? Yeah. And to see what happens to Newt and, and even to Hicks at the beginning of Alien 3 is really unforget, unforgivable. They could have come up with a better way to, you know, to insert Ripley into that scenario. They could have just, Newton Hicks were dropped off somewhere, they were found, and then Ripley went off on a thing, and then she went off. To, just to kill all those characters is just so unforgivable. Reprehensible. Anytime, you know, people get, you know say, oh, David Fincher's a genius, I'm like, yes, he's made a lot of great four-star movies. I think I got four of them on my top ten list. But I always go, he made Alien 3. Yep. I, I'm with you on that. And, you know, obviously that pissed Cameron off. I was a little surprised that he gave Terminator Genesis a pass. Because, because that's another movie to me that sort of betrays what Cameron set up. Especially in the second one. Yes. With John Connor as this warrior. And all of a sudden, oh, no, Genesis is going to fuck with that Yeah, uh, Genesis completely narrative. betrays the... the you know the, the central character of the Terminator series. The, the the whole reason the Terminator series exists is around John Connor. I mean, yeah. you say it's around Sarah Connor, but John Connor is the, the you know he's the MacGuffin. Yep. In a way, he's the one that is the, everything is happening because of what he has done, and to do what they do to him in that movie, and also I mean the way that they sort of ex- expediate Sarah Connor's arc. Mm. You know, in in Genesis, yeah, Terminator Genesis is an unforgivable piece of crap, uh, as well. I, I mean, it's poorly made. Uh, it's got Jai Courtney in it, and so many there. There's so many things wrong with that movie, and uh, yeah, I mean, for for Cameron to, I mean, I think that you know they probably just poked him in the ribs and like, hey, could you say something good about our movie? And maybe he generally liked it, okay, and he gave him a flowery quote. But I, you know, the, the fact that that movie then kind of throws out Terminator Three, which I think has one of the great dark endings of the past, you know, decade or so. Yeah, Terminator uh, Three is underrated. I think very under. I think it's very underrated. There's some really good action in there. It's you know, it, it's playing on the Terminator Two mindset, if you will. But there's some really fun action. Oh yeah, in that in that that whole chase scene where they destroy the city blocks mm-hmm. is is really fantastic. The ending is great. Uh, it, it, it 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 the humor works in that movie. Uh, compared to the the, the 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 next couple ones, which d- didn't, I mean, Terminator Salvation is not good at all. No, that's just a bad movie. I've seen it once. I will never watch it again. No, you you don't need to. But but that's just a bad movie. Terminator Genesis betrays the entire uh, essence of the franchise. Yeah, and I think what makes the first one so timeless is that it it, it works upon rewatches as this propulsive engagement with its audience and you earned that emotional investment and i think that you know cameron he's asking the spectator to engage with the film not necessarily on like a significant cognitive level because if you start thinking about time paradoxes your brain's going to implode um in any case we're using time travel in your in your plot but he he just wants you to be engaged with the film on an immediate visceral level to where you care about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to during this, you know, discussion, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the technical prowess that Cameron is known for. Yeah. Uh and and rightly praised for it. And it evolves with each film. Right, exactly. 
Um, but he he may not get as much. I mean, he certainly I think get, mostly gets credit for the, the the evolution of the female, the strong female lead, and rightly so. Uh, but sometimes he doesn't get as much credit for the emotional element that that do exist uh, within his movies. I mean, Titanic is an obvious, you know, it's an, its own obvious thing. But you consider the relationship between Ripley and Newt in Aliens. You consider the uh, the evolution of the you know the uh, fractured marriage in the Abyss, and that you know the Ed Harris's resuscitation scene of Mary Elizabeth oh my God. Antonio is you know emotionally Ugh. devastating. Uh, then you get to Terminator Two, uh, which you know I'm sure we'll we'll discuss soon. But you know the, um, the movie that has all of the everything that Terminator has, and then adds this extra emotional layer to it, which is why I will always prefer Terminator 2 to, to Terminator. I agree. Um, a lot of people, you know, want you know want to play the like, well, Terminator was first, so it clearly was better, which is like the alien argument, which I also don't agree with. Uh, I think Cameron, I think Cameron outdid Alien, and I think he outdid himself on the Terminator. I don't know how I feel about the alien argument, but we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I think we can talk a little bit just in terms of style because his movies do have a distinct feel. And a, and a certain flow to them. Um, I mean, he, like you mentioned, there's time to, there's always downtime to rest and reflect with the characters. And I know some people can maybe grow restless, but I think in any action film, you do need that downtime. Um, you get that in Terminator, you get that in Aliens, and you get that in Terminator 2. So it's it's part of telling a story to at least not. You know, you it can't just not everything can be Fury Road, <laughs> you know, where it's just a nonstop action set piece after action set piece. But I think Cameron, one obviously, if you watch, especially if you binge on a lot of his movies in a row, you will notice that deep blue hue, <laughs> very much so. Um, and he, he his movies just contain these interesting close ups of, of wheels or feet crushing objects. Um, close-ups of fights like the hallway in uh, Terminator 2 that feel very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think he's an amazing action director. And in light of seeing, st- you know, the stuff like Star Trek Beyond or even the latest Jason Bourne, where things are always so close up and messy and handheld there is a gracefulness to the way cameron shoots action sequences i yep. mean truly just the the, the uh, truck chasing um john connor in terminator 2 is it's still my jaw is still on the floor every time i watch that yeah i mean two two words to talk about describe the, what the look of the films that you've been describing the two words that i would use uh describing cameron's work uh one would be metallic yeah, in a way, there's a metallic sensibility to the, the look of his of his film. I mean, clearly, obviously, the with the technical know-how, there is going to be sort of this this element to it. Uh, and I would also use the word otherworldly. Mm. Uh, and yet, and in, in, I would use that word all the way up to even before he actually went out into space with <laughs> Avatar, uh, because all of his films have this. Well, I mean, that's not true. The aliens, obviously, is in space, so that's you know. Duh. His films, like, they feel like something you've never seen before because of the, the intricacies that he puts together in creating the sets, the art direction, uh, the, the, the feel of the movie. You know, the, the sets and aliens, 
don't feel anything like the sets that were created for the Abyss. And even though that's just a big oil rig, it feels someplace like you've never really quite been before. It doesn't feel like just like another, you know, DOS boot submarine. Right. Way that you're just underwater. It, it feels, you know, alien to you. Uh, you know, even in, in Avatar, when you get to, like... Like I don't, the stuff in Avatar that I, I tend to enjoy looking at are the stuff that don't involve the special effects, like the the you know Sigourney Weaver's uh, scientific lab, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, has this look to it that is very distinctly Cameron when you look at it. It feels uh, kind of militaristic. It feels metallic. It feels otherworldly. Uh, it doesn't look quite like anything you've ever seen before, except in a Cameron James Cameron movie. Yeah, that's very true. I mean. He creates fully realized universes yep. with each film, and I mean, that's obvious with something like Avatar, but that's a movie that just, just doesn't engage me in the slightest other than his eye candy. Right. And, you know, that's... I feel like that's its strength, of course, but, um, you know, something else is, like, I feel that he's a huge fan, and obviously he does a lot of research when it comes to science. I mean, clearly he has an affinity for... You know, deep sea exploration. He pretty mm-hmm. much took that up as a as a career. Um, but like with Nolan, you know, I th- science really comes into play with big ideas. And you know, Nolan obviously his themes sort of revolved around self deception or the fallacies and flaws of the human mind. Um, but you know, the, the the ideas of memory and dreaming are rooted obviously in science. Uh, and Cameron. The films that changed his life were 2001, and then later on, like he was working as a truck driver, and then he saw Star Wars. So I feel like he finds this nice balance between the quote-unquote cerebral that you would get in something like 2001, mm-hmm. but not forget to make a fun, good old-fashioned action-adventure in the science fiction genre like Star Wars did. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... That's really great that he can find that wonderful, um, you know, midground to create these universes and mythologies. And it's when it's rooted in genre storytelling, somehow a character like Ripley is fully dimensional and feels more human instead of being a caricature that you would find in a science fiction movie. So I think that's that's really impressive of him because I know he gets a lot of flack for his screenplays. I don't I don't think he's the best at dialogue. That's one thing I'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I mean that's that's well, we can get to that. Uh, sure. Story. But, you know, you think about going back to his days at, on the Roger Corman set is that he was labeled as being an innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, he would find ways to to create special effects on very low budget. You know, they had no money, they had to come up with a way to do it, which is ironic considering that he came from the Roger Corman uh, background, and then later on, you know, basically every movie he had done post Aliens became the most expensive movie of all time. <laughs> you know, The Abyss. At, you know, when that came out, it was six, sixty million dollars. The Abyss at the time was the most expensive movie ever made. And then Terminator Two. Two was the first one to crack a hundred million. <laughs> Titanic was yeah. well, True Lies was something like one hundred forty million, I think. Uh, then Titanic was the first movie to cross the two hundred million dollar barrier then i think avatar was even higher than that yeah so every time but but the thing is is you know with the exception of the abyss really all of those movies clearly made back their money and 
and you know the, the money's on the screen and the Absolutely. money's on the screen because he invented things. I mean, this guy's inventing cameras and things, inventing his own cameras for the abyss, creating his own wetsuits and <laughs> you know for the abyss. Uh, creating new cameras for Avatar and all these things. I mean, say what you will about you know anyone who just thinks they can just pick up a camera and be a filmmaker. This is gets back to sort of the you know the our initial argument in a way, in that you know if anyone who thinks they can just pick up a camera and just tell a story that you know that's great, and I'm, there are many people that can do that. But think of the technical prowess you have to have you know to know about to create your own camera. Be, yeah. So you can do certain shots, you know. I mean, th- this is this is the kind of stuff that, that Orson Welles is prayed, uh, of course. Uh, you know, appraised pr- for. You know, th- he invented things back in Citizen Kane that are still used today, and so you have these guys that are finding new ways to tell stories and to create images on screen uh, that they've never seen before and that they want to see. And if that's not, uh, capable with the technology that they have in front of them, well, they're, damn it, they're going to invent new technology and find a new way, a new angle, a new shot, a new, uh, you know, a new mat, a new, uh, flare, whatever it's going to take to, to get their vision up on the screen so we can all appreciate it. And they never sacrifice character or story. Nope. And that's, I mean, obviously, with each filmmaker you mention, I prefer other stories um, over others. Mm-hmm. And that's Certainly. the case for Cameron. And, you know, we, we just all have our, I mean, you mentioned just the innovation of special effects. When I, when I first saw Terminator 2 in the theater, and we're going to get to that soon, is it was just mind-blowing to me because I'd never yeah. seen that sort of morphing kind of effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, like, the first image I saw of Terminator 2, I think, was in an Entertainment Weekly where they were previewing it, and they showed the image of uh, the foster mom with the knife, uh, oh, the, the knife like, arm going into, away, huh? yeah, going into oh. Xander Berkeley like that, and I was <laughs> like, oh my god, this is going to be disgusting and disturbing <laughs> if this is representative of what Terminator 2 has. Uh huh. But yeah, I mean. He really has the passion and drive to bring his imagination to life in inventive ways. Um, and probably, you know, reading an interview with Linda Hamilton, probably to the detriment of his relationships. Cause oh, yeah, he doesn't care. See, the thing about Cameron, the simplest way to, I mean, everyone knows that he's a ball buster on set. Yeah. But, he, but he's a ball buster not because he can be. It's because, you know, Cameron's going... 600 miles per hour and when someone's only going 30 in his fast lane he's gonna you know jump yeah. on that car bump and you know bump and jump style basically you know he's not going to let someone if someone can't design the face hugger he wants the way he's gonna do it in aliens he's gonna do it himself just get out of my way you can't do it you can't do your job i will do this that's just the way he is I'm not saying that's right or wrong, and I mean I think you still treat people the way you treat people, but yeah. he's I mean he his his mind is working uh, a lot faster than just about anybody, and it's not even necessarily a knock on anyone on set. It's just the way he has worked, and yes, that has you know cost him some relationships, uh, particularly on after the abyss. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but you know. The, there you go. You know, wrapping up our conversation on Terminator real quick, I think why people might gravitate towards the original more 
is just the fact that this was pre CGI madness and everything is more practical and organic. And I mean, like those machines have an unsettling anthropomorphic quality to them, you know, just the, 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 the probing eyes, the metal arms, the metal fingers. I mean, we get all that obviously in Terminator two as well. It's also, I think it's also, it's a weird bit of nostalgia that, Mm. the critical mind has for certain things like you just you don't want to admit sometimes that something can be better than the thing you've built up in your mind and this is again this is not in any way a knock on 1984's the terminator but when you you know that sort of feeds into the alien argument it feeds into this it feeds into you know people who read godfather or godfather 2 or god forbid a remake uh, actually stands up to the original film stuff like that. you don't want to admit sometimes that the new guy on the block beat your, you know, your favorite thing in the world. Speaking of one of your favorite things in the world, Aliens. Yeah. His first yeah. film for a big Hollywood studio. Mm-hmm. And he proved he can handle a much bigger scale and budget. Um, and it really just... I mean, this is this sort of also cemented the tough-as-nails reputation that became uh, known when when you're working with him. But um, I think the last 20 minutes are among the best of Cameron's entire career. I adore the majority of this film. I don't think it's perfect. But maybe it really does come down to, like you mentioned, there is a little bit more, I don't want to say attachment to the original. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I prefer the claustrophobic horror I mean, it's it's a reversal though because you know with Terminator, I don't prefer the claustrophobic slasher horror version, but with Alien and Aliens, I actually prefer the original just slightly. Okay. Because uh, of the, because of the claustrophobia, because of the horror, because everything was new. There's only one alien you have to focus on, but at the same time, there's no denying how incredible Aliens is as a, a go for broke action film. Yeah, and as I, I recently hosted a uh, screening of Aliens, and at the screening, I you know I, I, I posed this question. I asked if you know who's an who's in the alien camp, who's in the aliens camp, and it was kind of split. It was it was pretty close. Uh, and there, there, I mean, again, you know, I have a preference. You have a preference. There's kind of almost no wrong answer to this. I mean, we there 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 merits for both films. I chalk it up to. S- in this most simplistic terms is you go to an amusement park, what ride do you want to ride first? Do you want to ride the haunted house or the <laughs> roller coaster? I think I want to go to the haunted house. You want to go to the haunted house? I want to go on the roller coaster. Okay. I'll and, eventually go to the roller coaster. Don't get me of wrong. Of course, and I will eventually go to the haunted house. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you want to talk you want to talk about attachment for a second. I think I promised you a story. Please. Uh, on the 86 podcast about aliens and my personal attachment. To uh, that's probably one of my favorite things about doing the podcast is the autobiographical stuff. Okay. Well, okay, so th- I told the story at the at the screening as well. Uh, I broke it up into two, into two parts. Uh, I saw Alien when I was about five years old. Wow. Okay. Uh, neighbors across the street, my best friend at the time, uh, his family was the first one in the block to get a VCR. And they would hold movie nights, like every Sunday night. And But they particularly liked to rent horror movies. So one night they rented Alien, and my dad and I went over and watched it. 
And needless to say, it scared the ever-loving shit out of me. As it probably should, a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, is that the thing that scared me the most in, in the entire movie, the thing that actually shook me up was Ash the Robot. Because even as, as a five-year-old, I got mm-hmm. the sense that spaceships weren't really real, that there probably were no monsters out there. But the idea that something could look human and end up being not what you think it is, and it's a, a robot that tries to kill you, scared the, scared the ever-loving crap out of me. So that had me shaking from, from the moment it happened. And we walked across back the street to my house. And I was visibly shaken up. And Dad got down on one knee and, you know, looked at me and he said, it's all make-believe. It's not real. There's nothing, none of that exists. You don't have to worry about it. You're okay. You're going to be okay. So there you go. Hmm. Seven years later, I find out in during soccer practice, uh, one of my teammates told me that there's a movie coming out called Aliens. That they made a sequel to Alien, and now it's pluralized. I wasn't scared. For I was now 11 years old. Uh, almost 11 years old. And I couldn't wait to see this movie. And I begged my dad, like, we have to go see this movie. You and I have to go see this movie together. And on... I don't remember what day it was, but it was a it was an afternoon matinee, pretty packed for an afternoon matinee at the Woodfield One and Two, the Great Woodfield Theaters, and it was my dad, me, and my two sisters, who were about <laughs> alien age, my alien age. Uh, oh boy! And and then I'm watching Aliens, and here you have Ripley. Uh, the arc, the beginning of her arc is confronting her fear. Confronting her fear of something that happened to her in the past. Next thing you know, she's completely afraid of the robot that's on you know, on board. <laughs> Wants nothing to do with it. You stay away from me, Bishop. You got that straight? Yep. Uh, then she has a conversation with Newt. And Newt says to her, My mommy used to tell me there were no monsters. No real monsters. But there are, aren't there? Which reminded me completely of the conversation I had with my dad after Alien. Wow. So, needless to say, there was this extra layer going sure. watching this movie. And I was only 11. You had like a meta movie moment, like an out-of-body experience right. almost. Yeah, didn't even know what the word meta meant at the yeah. time. Um, and so I had all that going on with me. And at the same time, a uh, movie sc- equally scaring the crap out of me and exhilarating me like few movies had ever done before. And obviously and and and, and funny enough, it, it became my dad's favorite movie. It beca- to you know to, to the day he passed away, he always claimed Aliens was his favorite movie. Now maybe that had something to do with that experience we had together. Mm-hmm. Uh but it, you know I I always tend to chalk it up as like he was always he was a big fan of war movies. Yeah. <laughs> that would he make complete war, sense too. He loved war movies, and here is a movie that, while not a war movie in the traditional sense, had all the elements of that. And he was a marine himself, my dad. Okay, yeah. So he, you know, he recognized that some of that camaraderie. He never had to go to combat himself, uh, but he, but he was in the corps, 
and he you know he recognized uh, a lot of this stuff and enjoyed uh, all that camaraderie and stuff too. So yeah, if I have this extra personal connection to aliens, well, I'm always going to fall upon that. And but but I still <laughs> I still contend that it's I think it's the best film of Cameron's career. I, I still I still believe that. It's funny that summer you had a bonding experience with your dad over aliens, and uh, that same summer I had a bonding experience with my dad over invaders from Mars. <laughs> Big difference. Big yeah. Difference. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, was I think what really helped with Invaders from Mars is this weird coincidence that there's a there's a moment where Timothy Bottoms uh, just you know comes home late at night, talks to you know his wife and his son, and he also has a friend with him, and this friend is named Ed, and Ed works for the telephone company, the switching division. My dad's best friend was named Ed, and he worked for the telephone company in the switching division. So he was the only one in the entire theater who laughed out loud. It's just an inside joke that yeah. will always stick with me. Certainly. And you, you'll, you have those moments, I'm sure, as well. Yeah. So it, it, it makes me completely understand the love for this movie and when i read pieces about why it's a masterpiece mm-hmm. i completely understand um you know and it's also not something like i feel deserves any sort of critique because it is very very personal to a lot of people but i also realize that even cameron himself f- felt like he didn't do the soldiers justice like he actually um, went on record to say that um, he like actually apologized to the Marine Corps for getting their camaraderie wrong, which is interesting to me. And I'm, but you know, I don't want to say that Hicks and Hudson and Vasquez are, you know, caricatures. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't say that at all. They're not like these faceless blue shirts that you're just waiting to die. Right, but I will admit, and not very few people will agree with this. I realize that Bill Paxton gets on my nerves after a while. This, His whininess. We have a huge argument over this because I think Hudson is one of the greatest characters in the history of film. Well, I I realize that. I, yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, this statement too. I love that he improvised these great lines. I love Game Over, man. That's that's Bill Paxton for you. That's that's amongst his genius. But he gets. Just a little too whiny. Okay, can I def- can I defend Hudson? Sure. I, I, I feel like I have to defend Hudson and what Bill Paxton and James Cameron brought to that character. Absolutely. Because here you have this character that the moment he's introduced, he is the prototypical, Cocky. you know, bad at loudmouthed badass. Yeah. You know, in some, you know, in in, in the frat house, he'd be the the, the douchebag that's always bragging about himself. You know, and we get that sense, and he, and even in the in the director's cut, you get even more of that. Even uh, he gives a very long speech on the drop down to the planet that actually refers to himself as the ultimate badass. Okay, so Bill Paxton. I don't know if you, I had seen Weird Science before Aliens, so I, I enjoyed Bill Paxton in that, and I was enjoying what I was seeing in this. Sure, uh, and then he becomes 
like when when faced with the worst experience you know, in combat that he's ever faced, clearly he he kind of you know he turns into what some people might call a whiny little bitch. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's and he's scared. And this is one thing that my my dad used to say is that the thing that scared him the most about aliens is when the Marines got scared. Oh, okay. That was okay. something that he always said. The thing that, you know, it wasn't, again, it was this weird thing. Like, I, the robot scared me, and it wasn't so much the aliens themselves that scared my dad. It was the fact that someone else was scared of them. <laughs> and the way that the, and, and Hudson is a big part of that, clearly. Uh, and but, but here's the thing, is that Hudson, in his waning moments, becomes every bit the badass that he always said he was. <laughs> and that arc, to me, is exemplary. To me, that arc is the kind of arc that we wish we had in all of us. That we wish we had the, the, the braggadocio to believe that we were so, the greatest in whatever capacity. And w- knowing our own insecurities faced with being challenged uh, you know, with, with statements like that, that we might fold under the pressure. But... At the right time, at the at the precise moment you need to be, you mm. can be the person you always said you were. Hudson, Private Hudson. Rest in peace. Yes. <laughs> in in um, his waning moments, he's being pulled under the floor by an aliens, and what does he do? Fuck you. Yeah. One, he gets one last fuck you into the aliens. That's that scene when I mean when the lights go when Rick. Let me rephrase this. When Ripley wakes up uh, in that in that room with Newt and discovers <laughs> that they're in trouble, the gun's gone and the, the the face huggers have been let loose. Everything from that moment on, probably the most in, intense final 35, 40 minutes of yeah. film of just about ever. Okay, but that sequence in when the lights go out and it's all red and they have to fit, you know the stand down the aliens and Hudson goes through his thing and gets pulled under i could watch that sequence on a loop for 24 hours straight i could watch that scene all day i think that scene is so brilliantly constructed um, it's it's scary it's tense it hits you with shock it's it, it, it's and then and then it's again it's exhilarating again because then they start kicking a little ass uh, then things go bad and then things go good for them and then they're running and everything that, that works within that sequence and just Hudson's diatribe and just swearing just f bombs at all the aliens just fills me with I get tickled pink watching that yeah that the whole when they're trapped and the face huggers are let loose there's the claustrophobia that gets to me <laughs> that whole sequence is incredible yeah are so you're okay with paul reiser too as a very conventional bureaucratic villain yes okay. uh, be- because in the context of again the alien aliens thing because cameron subverts it a little bit mm. and that we're set up to mistrust the one character bishop because of the experience from the past and yeah. burke i mean i you know now you know now, if you, if someone were to watch it now, you'd probably recognize that that's what's going to happen because we've seen that happen so many times since then. Sure, uh, but I, I have no, I, I never had a problem with that because I, you know, the, the idea that this guy is sort of he's kind of a champion for the first half of the movie. He's he's the only one, one of the few people that believes her. Uh, he's got reason to, obviously. But he's there, and he's trying to help her, and he's trying to get her job back, and all these kind of things. Uh, clearly, he's got his own self-interest in, in mold, but that just only makes the the 
the, the the ritualistic betrayals all the more where you just want to just punch his face in. Yeah, yeah, and then he would sort of replicate that later with Avatar, just that character and the dynamic. Well, yes, that you have. like I said, there was been repeated many times. Afterwards. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this really culminates in such a brilliant manner when it comes to cathartic action sequences and the this movie obviously also having uh, a famous line that people will remember years from now without question um you know when afi did their quotes so clearly this was on there mm-hmm. uh but yeah i mean it's the film that turned ripley into this you know sort of post-feminist icon it's the kind of strong female character everybody wants to be but very rarely get to be in real life I mean, and she's not at all playing a damsel in distress. I mean, she's very protective of herself after the entire experience. Uh, you know, obviously she has post-traumatic stress yeah. early on. But she is far more proactive in this. You know, even when essentially the person in charge can't live up to the task, she takes control. Well, that, I mean, yeah, that's one of the great scenes in Aliens is, is that the scene where they're about to become under attack, or they do come under attack for the first time, and the the the, the you know the scruffy new lieutenant Gorman uh, can't you know rise to the challenge, and she has to take over and you know take charge of the you know the vehicle yeah. to to get the boys out. Uh, but but I, I don't I, I think you're not giving Ripley uh, enough credit as far as. Um, Rising the challenge, you know, that she wasn't that she was passive in some way in the first Alien movie. Because if you if you go back and watch Ripley and pay really close attention to Ripley, she's the one from a lot of the movie that is coming up with ideas, is trying to you know steer people away from making stupid decisions, uh, and then ultimately you know is forced into the role of being in charge because all of the superiors are you know have been killed, but. You know, I mean, she's the one that doesn't want to let him in for quarantine. She's cha- she challenges Dallas to his face. She challenges Ash. Uh, she, you know, there's a deleted scene where she gets into a fight with you know the only other woman on board because she, you know, Veronica Cartwright is far more hysterical yeah. than Ripley is in that movie. And and you know, right up to the very end, she takes charge. She doesn't you know just hide uh, when the alien's there. She gets into the space suit and gets yeah. the harpoon and everything and. And she's just as defiant at the beginning of Aliens. Once she, you know, she challenges the status quo of the, you know, the quote-unquote company, and is throwing papers across the room, and you know, you know, calling them on their bullshit. And yeah, I mean, she's she's got she's got fear. She's got deep-rooted fears, as anyone would have traumatic fear from that from that first experience. But that's about it. You know, she has really bad dreams, and she's carrying around this torture that she went through. But, you know, even when she gets, you know, she gets on board and she, you know, Gorman's like, okay, explain it to, you know, tell them what you told us. And she tries to explain it and she gets a little, you know, flustered. And Vasquez is like, the only need to know is one thing, where they are. And she's got the braggadocio and Ripley just looks at her and goes, I hope you're right. I really <laughs> do. You know, so. Yeah. Now, she was, she's definitely more thoughtful in the first film. I mean, maybe it's more, she acts instinctively. You know, in the second film, because she knows what's out there this time. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it! That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, 
You can just kiss all that goodbye. Sigourney Weaver knows how to humanize Ripley in the same capacity that, you know, Bruce Willis does with John McClane in Die Hard to where you want to see them succeed in the end mm-hmm. and conquer the bad guys. And yeah, the, the whole airlock sequence, I mean, that whole moment is just one of the best <laughs> action set, suspenseful action set pieces. And then of course, um, Bishop's involvement with that, that whole moment too is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, oh, maybe Bishop crawling through the pipe to get to the to, to get to the uh, outside to grab the ship. That still freaks people out. Nothing happens in that scene. Yeah, it's just him crawling through this thing. Now, of course, you're set up for the Great Fall. I'm sitting there watching that in the theater back in '86, thinking, "Oh, some alien is going to crawl, you know, going to jump through this pipe and kill him. He's got nowhere to go." And that and that's exactly what Cameron wants you to think. Nothing much happens in the movie for the first hour. As far as you know, if you're if you're just chalk, you know, chalking up action beats, okay. I know that surprised me upon rewatch, where it is kind of a slow burn. But so was the first one. So was the first one. He was that was sort of his, you know, many ways, you know, paying homage to the first movie. And that uh, there are even shots in the director's cut where he, you know, he pans around the uh, the the ship, the the Sulaco, the the marine ship that's taking him down there, very much like they did with the Nostromo, with Ridley did in the first movie. That's that's stuff you see on the director's cut. And the the last, but then you get you know you get the big, the first big action sequence, and then you've got some exposition where you have to basically seal themselves off, and then they he throws onto to them this this nuclear explosion that's going to happen because the core got ruptured and all this stuff, and then the action starts and you get the face hugger sequence, then you get the uh, you know the them being trapped uh, when the lights go out, then you have them going through the airlock, then you have to have Newt rescued, and then Newt rescued again, and then you think it's all over, and the queen is on the ship. Yep. It's unbelievable, and Relentless. every one of those sequences works fantastically. Yeah, and I know it that... It doesn't feel like overkill. It never does. It's it's funny that you mention Overkill because I was going to ask with your experiences watching any of the special edition director's cuts because I don't think I think I've seen the Terminator Two one, mm-hmm. um, but obviously I'm I'm assuming you prefer the theatrical cuts. Yeah, I do uh, a, a bit. I, I find they feel bloated. Otherwise, I would. Think. I don't. I don't necessarily feel feel bloated. I think that. Like there's something like, again. I said this at the the screening that I hosted that I know people that really like the idea in the director's cut that Ripley had a daughter who died and that gives her this sort of instant connection to yeah. the new character. But for me, again, you want to talk about things that have been repeated over time. There's always you know that's that's become a cliche where you have some father who's either lost a child or has a child that doesn't pay attention to him anymore, so he finds the surrogate son or daughter basically, to mm-hmm. make up for their loss. And I think there's something far more beautiful and complex about just Ripley seeing a child in danger and wanting to protect her. You yeah, know, that, that's... She has com- some, she's lost her daughter. It's compassion and yes. instinct combined, it's, you know? Abs- absolutely. Those are the two perfect words to use. Uh, I mean, there, there's... there Again, there are bits in the director's cut that I, I like. I like most of the stuff in the director's cut. I like the, the extended... There's the extended Hudson bits, a couple of them, that are f- both very funny. Um, I'm not crazy about the... There, there's this sort of extended... A couple of extended action beats where they put up these sentry guns 
and down a couple of the tunnels. And basically, the sentry guns go off when the aliens are trying to get through. And I think it those scenes do a disservice be, uh, because it, it not. I mean, I don't want to say it just, it's just a reminder that the aliens are there, but again, you sort of have this sort of the slow burn being created mm-hmm. between the two big action set pieces, the uh, where it's just like where are the aliens going to get in. And here you have this sort of reminder that the aliens are going to come, trying to come down this tunnel. They're trying to come down this tunnel. We have to figure they're eventually going to find a tunnel to get into. The other way, you're not really thinking about that. All you're thinking about is like, we have to just lock ourselves in here. We're going to keep them out and we'll just hope, for, hope for, and then get out and hope for the best. So. So the reason why I bring up special editions. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I, I have my moments. Yes. So what if James Cameron remade The Day the Earth Stood Still Underwater? He would call it The Abyss. More than likely. Yeah. And honestly, I don't remember if I saw this in the theater or not. I Um, did. (laughs) Yeah, I I would think because my dad loves science fiction so much, we must have. But it's one of those, I don't know, gaps in my memory, whether or not we went to check this out or not. Um, I would assume we did, and I just don't remember. But it's it's so riveting, man. I rewatched this on unfortunately a very crappy DVD transfer. Yeah, sent to me via Netflix, and I was like, God, why isn't this on Blu-ray? And then, of course, the announcement comes that yeah. <laughs> it is coming up. Maybe we should have just waited. <laughs> nah. Yeah, but no, it's it's still great, regardless of the transfer, and I'm going to be owning this Blu-ray for sure. It's worth reminding people how good this movie re- actually is. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, because obviously the, you got Terminator, you got your Aliens, you got your Titanic and Avatar, and the Abyss is sort of that middle stepchild in between that uh, is the least successful, I would say, of all of his movies, uh, I, I believe. I mean, I'm sure it made more money than the first Terminator, but budget-wise, uh, it's a disappointment. And, again, I have a very personal recollection of seeing this movie. First of all is because uh, I was, growing up, I was not a big child. Uh, I did not look old for my age. Uh, so I was still, at the age of 15, I was still able to get in for children's prices. Oh, wow. That's, okay. that's nice. Uh, yeah, and I, I did that for my friends, too. Well, three children, please. Uh, I just turned on the voice, and they give you the children's tickets. Uh, but the abyss, uh, so I couldn't, basically what I'm getting at is that I couldn't get into R rated movies by myself. The abyss was R? No, it wasn't. Oh, that's, that's what I'm getting to. Okay. Is that I was over at a friend's house and we were watching, I think it was, it was some, it it was probably like movie time. It was before it was E, the E network. I think it was called, it was called movie time. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, during their, one of their movie news segments or whatever, they would put up the new MPAA ratings. Okay, and they put, I remember sitting there watching it, and they put up The Abyss, which I knew was coming out, and I knew was being directed by James Cameron, who had just directed one of my favorite movies ever, and I was so looking forward to it, and read about it, and heard about it, and all these things, and then I saw the rating, PG-13, and I just leapt up in the air, I'm like, yes, I can <laughs> see this by myself if I want to, and and I did. <laughs> I ended up going to see The Abyss uh, at the Woodfield 1 and 2. And, uh, and and absolutely loved it. Yeah, I love movies where characters just react um, believably to unbelievable circumstances. They just they have to adapt. Mm-hmm. 
and using what they know, their knowledge and their skills, and you know, especially if they're really good at their job, uh, it's just it's wonderful to watch people um, try to overcome these really difficult circumstances in, in this in the treacherous environment and unpredictable environment, and it presents a situation, you know, in which the military is really in their own world, just busily engaged in defending against an unknown threat. But because they're acting so impulsively, like the majority of their actions lead to a, some kind of disaster. And, you know, it's it only becomes preachy if you watch the special edition, in my opinion, with just the ending montage that the aliens sort of showcase to Ed Harris. I don't think that's bad. The Explorers montage? Pretty you... much, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a good way to put that's it. exactly what I call it. Yeah, yeah. That's where it really sort of becomes just like the ending monologue mm-hmm. only through this montage of the day the Earth stood still. Yeah. Where it's like, uh, cautionary tale, everyone, uh, technology, war, bad. <laughs> well, it's just, the Abyss is this weird, you know, because they eventually when they eventually put the special edition together uh, and re-released it in the theaters and Siskel and Ebert actually reviewed it on their show and mm. both of them called it, uh, they gave it two thumbs up when it, when it came out, they were both three stars on it. And they, when it came out again, they reviewed it again and actually said it was a better picture. And, and, and this is like, that's rare. It, it, yeah, it is rare, but the abyss is one of those few director's cuts that's actually, uh, held up as sort of a standard, when people talk about, you know, directors' visions, you know, being shortchanged and whatnot. And really the only the only place where it sort of shortchanges and, and sort of both ways in a way is the the extra stuff with the aliens. Because mm-hmm. the the aliens of the because the Abyss is a two hour twenty minute movie as is. That was released right. back in nineteen eighty nine. And the stuff with the aliens uh, even though there's, there's, you know, the special effects are kind of mind blowing at the time, and there's some really beautiful stuff there. It, it, to some people, the alien stuff felt completely superfluous. To like, you could have taken the alien stuff out, and you still could have had the same kind of movie, basically. Yeah. You know, the the alien stuff serves to push Michael Bean officially over the edge, basically, uh, and then to save Ed Harris in mm-hmm. the theatrical cut. And I, to me, I wasn't bothered by that because I enjoyed the, the, you know, the sort of the lyricism of the idea that these blue collar workers are down there and there is this, you know, extraterrestrial force that lived, you know, who knows how long they've been there, if they came down to save us, to protect us, whatever their, their means. But the mystery of it, I thought, added to the spectacle of the abyss. Yeah, keep it, keep it a little ambiguous. You don't necessarily have to give us a whole... I don't know, um, extra layer of what the aliens are or where they come from. And he really doesn't. No. You know, in both cases. No. Which is, which is what I really appreciate about it. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's good that it's, you know, it's not the focal point. I mean, I even think, for the most part, the effects kind of hold up. I mean, they look like, you know, these sort of, it's, they look like a combination between a, like a glowing stingray and a jellyfish. Yeah. When they're floating in, yeah. in, in the water, and I, I, I think I, that, I still find that stuff really endearing. It's very sort of Spielbergian in that regard, especially totally. with the way the film ends. Totally, yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, the, but the thing, I mean, the, the special edition again, I, again, I don't mind it, and no. and, I, and I like and I like it actually very much uh, because there there are some more character beats 
in the movie between mm-hmm. some secondary characters that I, that I like very much. And it was just kind of cool because you had heard it was one of those, you know, it was right in this period, at least for me, where the bridge between being sort of a, you know, a passive spectator of movies and just, you know, like not knowing much about what was going on behind the scenes with movies and when they were coming out and when they were being made and all these kind of things uh, to the point now where I was reading more magazines and knowing a little bit about the history of the abyss. And you knew for all these years that there, you know, there's this big tidal wave sequence that, you know, <laughs> was, ne- you know, was cut out of the movie and all these things. I'm just like, Oh, I wanted to, see- I want to see that. Where, where, right? where, where do we yeah. get to that? And then you get the special edition and you finally get to see it. And whether you think it works or not is immaterial for my point. It's just like, Oh, cool. There's there's the tidal wave sequence we've been talking about all this time. It's like this when you see like the Little Shop of Horrors again, another '86 film, uh, and you finally get to see the 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 original ending and the destruction of Audrey II destroying the world in all scale. It's finally like you finally get to see this years later, and there's something exciting about that. And on the flip side, you have the octopus in the Goonies. When you finally see that, you're really yeah, let down. that's yeah that's a that's a letdown. <laughs> that's a letdown for sure. Uh, but no, but the 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 camera the Cameron director's cuts uh, was one. Of, I mean, there was a, there was a period when this was laserdisc intensive at one point too. Uh, that he was one of the few people that was actually doing this, that going back into his movies and refashioning uh, all this footage that we would normally just see as deleted scenes before. Well, and, he felt the he felt the abyss was unfinished. Yeah, he did in its original form. So. Yeah, he did, uh, and and you know, this was a, a story that he wrote back in high school. The, the this idea of the the oil workers and the military and the the aliens mm. and whatnot. This is something that he you know had written out you know like long form and uh, as a story back in high school, and you know some people you know sort of look upon it that way that there is you know some simplicity to the story. Uh, I think another way to look at it is there's it's almost like a tri- uh, you know kind of a tribute tip of the hat to Alien in a way in that your heroes are all these blue collar workers, yeah, basically confronting these otherworldly forces uh, and then having to deal with the, again the militaristic side, uh, the, the the company if you will, uh, you know you know going about the going about things the completely wrong way, uh, irregardless of human life. And stuff, and I, I think all of those elements really blend together really nicely. And then on top of that, it's such a technically beautiful piece of work. Um, yeah, it's the, that, it's the birth of CGI around this time. I mean, obviously we had Tron, mm-hmm. we had Starfighter, sure, but th- th- this was one of the first movies too. I remember vividly wanting to watch the HBO special on the making of. Sure. Because I was just really fascinated by that little alien creature that could, you know, emulate them and yeah. with their faces and stuff. And just to see like the like pictures of like this the giant oil rig that they built entirely yeah. on the bottom of this giant water tank. Uh, I mean, the, the I mean, you can go out and read some of the horror stories of the making of this movie. Horror stories, not so much that it was how much trouble it was to shoot, but just I mean, people just physically being destroyed making this movie. Ed Harris won't even talk about this movie from, from what I understand, uh, because of the physical demands put on a Mary Elizabeth Monster Antonio during the, the resuscitation scene that we talked about where Ed Harris is slapping the crap out of her and stuff. That uh, is a, an amazing moment. It's an, it's an amazing scene. It's it really, it's an amazing scene. Uh, and, and it could, could have easily been really corny and cheesy and over the, and over, it doesn't feel over the top. It feels like someone doing every, every, 
last breath trying to save somebody. Yeah, it feels like it goes on longer than it should, but for a reason. Right. Come on, breathe, baby. God damn it, breathe. God damn it, you bitch! You never backed away from anything in your life! Now fight! 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 Right now! Do it! Fight, god damn it! Fight! 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 And it always gets me when he's, you know, he's going, fight, fight. Yeah. And then his voice breaks and he just, mm-hmm. he can't get out the last fight anymore. He just, he can't physically just get it out of his mouth to, to say fight one more time. Uh, and then, you know, she wakes up. But, uh, yep. um, but, you know, to see like, you know, like the, I mentioned the, 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 the suits and basically, and that they, you know, Cameron, you know, all the, underwater films that he had seen growing up as a kid, he, one of his biggest complaints was, well, you could never see their faces underwater. You could never mm. tell necessarily who was who. So he designed those helmets. Right. Those big, with those big square, you know, things where you could actually see precisely who was in those suits at all times. Yeah, and just, you know, just him floating down essentially to the abyss with the, um, that's special liquid that allows you to yes. breathe that that's something that really because i don't know i i wouldn't say that i have a fear of drowning but uh-huh. that is just not a good way to go out so anytime i see somebody in jeopardy drowning essentially is it really gets to me i mean that's why that whole tense sequence in the last uh mission impossible movie gets to me yeah uh-huh. uh and obviously what mary elizabeth monstratonio goes through it's mm-hmm. it, ugh. Well, yeah, I mean, instead of that, again, you want to talk about slow burn. I mean, the whole idea that Ed Harris has to sit there in that one moment and know that they're going to have to succumb to this water, that she's going to, he's going to have to watch her die, yeah, essentially before he can revive her. Um, and there's these little things like that, where Cameron is really good is the technical aspects of his screenplay. Like I said, maybe his dialogue might not be great as, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but the technical stuff that he, when he talks about things, even if they're made up. In a way, they they sound completely real. When she's talking about, you know, uh, hypothermia and stuff, and then uh, other other things, and when they talk about the breathing fluid, and they give the exposition on that, uh, and the idea that he's just sit there and breathe this fluid in that that sequence alone is is terrifying. Yeah, the actors sell it, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about. I mean, how, there aren't a lot of memorable, aren't as many memorable scores these days as there were when we were growing up. At least that's something that I tend to believe in maybe i'm overlooking certain well, things I, I, i'm not paying attention to his, to them as much anymore i would argue that interstellar really harkens back to the i don't know just it, it totally reminded me of starman in a way that it's stuck in my head oh yeah well yeah interstellar is interstellar inter- inception uh even mm-hmm. uh there there are obviously exceptions to the rule but uh the, like back then was a, a period when i bought soundtracks left and right and yeah. the abyss i don't know like i didn't actually end up getting a soundtrack to the abyss until a couple years ago when they released like this two disc special edition of the soundtrack hmm. uh, and i bought a cd i think it was like a limited edition and i ended up buying that uh but you know this was the era of you know these great scores by you know not just john williams but jerry goldsmith and Silvestri and you know some james horner stuff in there and you know tangerine dream even uh, oh, and yeah. it's just there's not. I mean, there there are certainly good scores, but there's not a lot of that you probably go out and start humming 
to yourself. Right. You know, I think the probably the last one I did that to was probably Force Awakens and Williams. Well, so that, we, yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I, I actually didn't bring up the fact that I think the Terminator, the original Terminator score is a little dated. It like even just during the chase sequences, it's like it's 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 like the synth bass kind of the chase stuff, yes, but I think the main theme still holds up. Oh no, yeah. It it definitely does. Um so let's just transition over to what I still consider to be my favorite. And I know it's it's funny because now that we're on this website called Letterboxd yeah, and uh, you follow a certain amount of people. You're able to check, like, I, okay, I just rewatched Terminator Two. I'm very curious to see what everybody else thinks about it, mm-hmm. and it is more all over the place than I, I expected it to mm. be. It's not, you know, four stars and up. It's all over the place. Yeah. I mean, there are people who do give it five stars, but then there are people who give it two, two and a half, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> How is that possible? I mean. I do think, in the same way that you saw Aliens at kind of uh, an impressionable age, I saw this when I was 13, and, I mean, you saw Aliens way younger, but I I feel like this is, you know, 12 and 13 were also seminal years in that I'm sort of forming my own identity and really figuring out what I love. Mm -hmm. Get down. This was an action blockbuster that I went back to numerous times, for the spectacle, for Sarah Connor's transformation, um, and just the special effects that I'd never experienced before, and I kept wondering, how did they do that, and how did they do that? And, you know, just the, the stunts during the the, the chase sequence. Um, and I was just... My jaw was on the floor during the nuclear attack dream sequence. Like... That really freaked me out. I don't, I, I don't, obviously I didn't, I hadn't seen like the day after mm-hmm. yet, but uh, th- just that fear really instilled itself into me even more with what they did for that. And that, you know, yeah. like watching it behind the scenes, the special effects technicians all felt really stressed and uncomfortable putting yeah. that together, like having to make ash out of these children. Mm-hmm. To blow them away, I mean that whole sequence is just. Ugh, it, it's it's funny that the 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 school year before, I mean that was the summer of ninety one. So the school year before, uh, one of the things that I was doing in high school was sort of to make my niche. It was also something that I was good at, but it was to sort of make my niche. Um, and I guess it was might have been after ninety one. It might have been ninety. Later that after Terminator came out, but regardless, um, I we had to do some project that had to deal with some sort of social issue or something like that in our morality class, if you will. And uh, Driscoll Catholic, ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> and um, and I did a with a friend of mine. We did a twenty minute video called simply called War, mm. and it basically all it was was. Uh, clips of old war movies uh, pastiched together uh, to music. Put music over. Put Edwin Starr's War on it. Put uh, Billy Joel's Goodbye Saigon uh, <laughs> nice. on it. Yeah. And uh, and we, it was this this whole thing where it basically took us from like the old like revolutionary Civil War up to like World War One, World War Two, uh, and then there was a a final the epilogue of it was set to The Doors, The End. And it was all scenes of nuclear destruction. 
Uh... But Terminator 2 had not yet come out on video yet. So I didn't have that footage that I desperately wanted, the scene you were just talking about. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could have been one of the first bootleggers to walk into the movie theater with a video cam. Of course, it would have been a giant VHS yeah. camcorder that you couldn't really hide. Yeah, that would have been, you know, so I ended up using, like, stuff from, like, The Man Who Saw Tomorrow and stuff, oh, like, wow. nuclear bombs and stuff. It was, it's, it's not the best epilogue. It works because of the music, but mm-hmm. I really wish I would have had that Terminator footage, Terminator 2 footage. Well, re-edit it. <laughs> I could. I should. I have. I still have it. Yeah. You know, it's it's... You know, me and Colin, we love to do that stuff once mm-hmm. in a while. <laughs> it's yeah. fun. But, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's it stays true to the spirit of the original. It expands upon its themes. It has more humanity and compassion for its characters. Um, I mean, I understand people ragging on Edward Furlong. I, like, I can understand... past it, people. You gotta get past it. I, I think you should. I, I, I like him in this movie just... I know that it it can be irksome when his voice is changing. <laughs> you know, he's a kid. I know, right? Puberty, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, if, if Edward Furlong is the thing that hangs you up about Terminator 2, then, you know, there's, there's really no hope. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Dipshit. 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 Oh, shit. Some shit. Blow shit up. Bullshit. Shit. 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 Uh, <laughs> well, I just I just saw snarky little essays about he's just terrible, and I'm I don't know. I never thought that when I was younger, and I still don't think so. Yeah, I I don't either. I I don't. I mean, there there's there's so much greatness about that movie. When you think about the you know the old the, the cliche of sequels have to be bigger and better and that kind of thing, and how often so many people try to do that. But they off they fail pretty miserably. Like mm-hmm. yes, it's bigger and there's more special effects and there's more money thrown at the screen and there's more explosions and all the, all that kind of stuff. Seemingly more action, but not many have done it better than Terminator Two. No. Terminator Two belongs in a very rare category of see whether you believe the the sequel is superior or not to the first movie. It doesn't matter. He Cameron took the additional money that he had. And basically created the vision that he would have created back in 1984 if he had the money. Yeah. And he was able to do it, and he upped the ante on the, spe- on the action sequences. When people, you know, I, you know, somebody, I mean, you mentioned the Bourne series earlier, and that's hardly even the worst offend, uh, offender uh, the, you know, the, of the sort of the Michael bay of action yeah. sequences and things like that. And I, I'll tell you Michael Bay Cameron story uh, in a minute, too. Um but you consider that how often you know how often people say like oh this movie had really great action sequences and then I'm thinking like well no because you couldn't really see what was going on and an action sequence either has to be great enough in its own construction to where you know like a like a Jackie Chan type type sequence where the plot is yeah. doesn't matter the action sequences are why you're there for the movie and the action sequences work on their own as just a fantastic bit of stunt choreography and camera placement and just choreography and all that kind of stuff or it has to be where you maybe the action sequences isn't as technically proficient in that matter but the stakes are to a point that where you care what the outcome is going to be of said sequence Mm -hmm. and Terminator 2 combines those two yeah 
where you care about what's happening and they're technically proficient in in a way that you you would think that having a craftsman like Cameron out there that so many filmmakers of this of of generations to come have been able to look at and study and probably grew up with even more so than Spielberg and Zemeckis and people like that um more more so Spielberg than Zemeckis um that you would think that they would learn something from these guys and that's why I bring up Michael Bay because on the set of The Rock uh Michael Bay uh, would ask Ed Harris about working with James Cameron. Ooh, maybe that's why The Rock is actually the only good Michael Bay movie. Yeah, maybe he got a couple pointers. Yeah, uh, but but here's I mean, and this you know, here's here's what you know Ed Harris said to him. Now, Ed Harris uh, did not have a great time working on The Abyss and doesn't like talking about it really that much. Uh, and Michael Bay asked James Cam or asked uh, Ed Harris about working with James Cameron and how he conducted his sets. And he wanted Michael Bay wanted to emulate the way that James Cameron run his sets. Hmm. And Ed Harris looked at him like, "Why would you want to run a set like that?" Well, of course, that not, it doesn't really you know, pay off my action sequence rant, but it's just the idea that Michael Bay is clearly someone has been chasing James Cameron his entire career. Yeah, and, but and, 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 you know, no, he and he hasn't he didn't learn a thing. No, Cameron Cameron knows when to present a long shot when it when you should cut to a close-up and it's all technically proficient and it's edited with a rhythm and not in a choppy fast adhd kind of rhythm to where you don't even get you know a breath in otherwise i think you know watching something like terminator 2 especially with the incorporation of special effects you know when something is you know that's the thing too i noticed even when I was rewatching True Lies, I always knew when there was a stunt double, I could see it. Mm. <laughs> and that's maybe like my only major critique is that maybe for a second I'm taken out of the action sequence because I'm like, oh, well, that's clearly Arnold's stunt double right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, to really confirm it, you have to freeze frame it, and I kind of did that. But <laughs> yeah. And, you know, here when Arnold is jumping off that motorcycle, though, it's it's really... You're in the moment. You don't really care if it's a stunt double or not. Yeah, but you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can tell. Um, and, 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 yeah. But it doesn't bother me. That's the thing. And it, because yeah. it, I'm just so into the way James Cameron shoots action. Yeah. Well, you have to think that Cameron would rather linger on that shot than care if you think it's a stunt double or not. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he had a good, a, a de- you know, as good as you could possibly find at a distance. Uh, to look like Schwarzenegger, and he would just rather you watch that that chopper go all the way, you know, to the you know to the bottom of the reservoir or the sewer, or whatever it is, uh, and and just do it in one in one take. Yeah, you know, and you know to see the dis- the way he destroys the semi that the T one thousand is driving, uh, and has a you know embank up the the thing and crash into the the overpass and, and stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's one technically proficient. We keep using those words action sequence after another and it's something that has defined his career there are very few action directors that have been able to pull off the kind of stuff that james cameron does george miller is one obviously spielberg mm-hmm. spielberg is clearly another uh and then you can find traces of other other directors here and there that have managed to do things but mostly 
it, it seems like they're directors, and whether they're up against tremendous how much pressure they're up against, their time or whatever, or they don't have the the clout that a Cameron or Spielberg has to basically say, "Oh no, hold off, give me a couple more hours, let me get this shot right," uh, and they have to cut corners. So they don't have the the necessary uh, footage, you know, long footage to to show geography, to choreograph something completely. Just like oh, we got to get from here to here, and let them, we'll do it in as few shots as we possibly can to make to, to complete the illusion. Yeah, and again, he doesn't sacrifice character, you know. And Sarah Connor's transformation is one of my favorite sort of franchise character mm-hmm. arcs. Really, I mean. Seeing her in this movie in contrast to the first one is just really astonishing. You know Linda Hamilton went through some major training, uh, both with the military and just with a personal trainer, Mm -hmm. (laughs) clearly. And when she goes after Miles Dyson, even though you don't know all that much about Miles Dyson, you know why she's there, you know what purpose he serves, to where... You know, you actually care about who is essentially the side character at that point that you're not even um, that invested in. You're just, you know what he's done <laughs> and why she's going after him. But that there's, whole tense sequence is really effective. There's a story behind that sequence, too. Hmm. Kind of glad you brought that up. Uh, because in, in that sequence, as you just mentioned, she's you know she's at a specific purpose. She believes she's if she kills Dyson, then everything will just erase. Everything will be normal. The, the judgment day won't happen. All that kind of stuff. So clearly, there has to be this determination and this emotional, uh, you know, anger and revenge and catharsis all going through her her mind and her body and her face at the same time. And before they shot that scene. James Cameron bust into Linda Hamilton's dressing room and verbally berated the hell out of her. Uh, yeah, verbally berated the hell out of her to the did point the Kubrick he, thing. She, he did. He absolutely did. Uh, so the reaction that you see may as well just be her pointing a gun at James Cameron. Shut, shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! It's all your fault. Motherfucker! It's all your fault. Because the camera lingers on her face. It's a two-shot. It's Dyson, and then it's her. And there's a long, lingering shot of on, you know, looking at uh, her pointing the gun at him and saying, you motherfucker. You know, that's ex- clearly what she was feeling towards James Cameron at that point. Wow. And then, of course, she later married him. So, <laughs> all is forgiven. All is good on the set. Yeah. I, I, I wish she was still active because i've always i've always liked her and i mean obviously she's going to be defined by being sarah connor and uh you know even just after watching the first two i was like you know what maybe i'll watch the third one again uh-huh. <laughs> and then maybe i'll get to the sarah connor chronicles Terminator three three's good people it don't is. let anyone tell you otherwise i like jonathan mostow man i really do I love breakdown. So well, that's a, that's a, well. There you go. There's a perfect example of one of those others through time that I've mentioned. Breakdown has some really terrific uh, action set pieces. Oh God, yes. Yeah. And another movie that it just really gets to you as it goes along. And obviously, Kurt Russell is the everyman. The king doesn't hurt. Right. Yeah. But I, I mean, there's really brilliant cinematography throughout Cameron's entire career. But I, I just 
it's hard not to be more in tune with his use of color, especially in Terminator 2, with orange and blue, mm-hmm. especially um, during the steel mill and all that. And Certainly. They, they, they pretty much just found this abandoned steel mill and made it their own. You know, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the steel grating was an excuse to use low-angle lighting effects through the floor and just did a lot of inventive things with that space that is pretty astonishing. That whole final confrontation, um, it rivals the first one. It really steps things up and you genuinely care. And when, you know, the Terminator gives that thumbs up, maybe it's a little cheesy, but it's, it's earned. Yeah, it it, it is kind of earned. Uh, it does hit you. Uh, even if some think it's pandering to Cisco and Ebert, whatever, they give, (laughs) they give it two thumbs up. Uh, some people do this. Some people funny. think that, um, but no, I, I I always I mean that the whole I mean that that whole sequence like makes some grown men cry when the Terminator lowers himself into the lava. That's it's a really nicely done scene, really nicely done by Schwarzenegger particularly. He's really good in that scene. Yeah. And um and, and again, you have another film, a, a sequel. Uh, you know, granted, mostly in the technical category, all in the technical categories really, but seven Oscar nominations for Terminator Two. Wow. You know that I mean those you don't get Oscar nominations out of big summer blockbusters like that. No, you just you just don't. Not lately, Fair. that's for sure. Well, Mad Max. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> the exception, not the rule. So we can sort of briefly touch upon the rest. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. <laughs> yeah. True Lies is fine. <laughs> I'd never really. I don't know. I mean, Tom Arnold's hilarious. Bill Paxton's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very fun. It's actually a very funny movie. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's a love the computer business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm going to walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. Give me back a second. But I, I just... I don't really get caught up in it as much. I don't really... Here's okay. Here's the thing about True Lies. Mm. I I I happen to think it's 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 a lot of fun, and there there are two different opposing ways to look at the film. One, the, a lot of the critics of the film obviously liked not not like, but focus upon the idea that it's a very misogynistic film. It comes across that way too. Yeah, just a little uh, bit. Yeah, and it's it's you it's, in some in some respects it's hard to argue with that, and that there is some bullying aspects to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what Schwarzenegger does to Jamie Lee Curtis in the film, yeah, uh, you know, you know, it, it, some of some of it's out of love, and the the strip tease sequence might, you know, although aesthetically pleasing to the to some of our eyes, um, is you know maybe maybe pushing the boundaries a little bit too far on that. But on the other hand, he did, did think she was cheating, and that's you know that's bad. Uh, so everyone's lying to each other, and that's really kind of the whole purpose of the movie. But at the same time, True Lies came out in nineteen ninety summer of nineteen ninety four. And what is significant, if you, I'll give you this trivia question, 
What is significant between the years of 1990 and 1994 in the movie world? Can you think of something that hmm. was absent in the years 1990 to 1994? Hmm. It's not coming to me. James Bond. Oh. License to Kill came out in 1989, and you didn't have GoldenEye until 1995. Oh. So True Lies fulfilled this sort of this, not just the lacking of any James Bond whatsoever, but people who were disenchanted with the Timothy Dalton films, which I am not one of those, uh, got a chance to get this sort of this James Bond film, a, a James Bond film that they hadn't seen done with such expertise in a very long time. You know, I'm a, I'm a fa- big fan of Octopussy because it's one of the first James Bond films I saw, but it's not considered one of the best James Bond films. You had an entire period of Roger Moore that was hit or miss with a lot of the hardcore James Bond people, and True Lies sort of fulfilled that niche. It fulfilled that void for people. And I think in many ways it did it. I, you know, True Lies I think is better than a lot of the James Bond movies. Yeah, I never really got... Maybe it's just... I don't. I wouldn't say I have an aversion. I just don't. I never got into James Bond movies. Well, uh, well, yeah. Then you probably wouldn't uh, <laughs> respond as much to this one. I, I just think. It, I just think it's an amazingly entertaining picture. Um, I, I think it's 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 got a. I think it's got a very clever screenplay. Uh, mis- misogyny aside, or whatever. Uh, and again, the action sequences are are really fantastic. I mean, the entire Harrier jet scene is not just. You know that's great. Real is really you know a, a, you know a great action set piece, but it's also really funny. The whole set piece with him on the helicopter and them in the limo is is really fantastic. There is some amazing uh, cinematography in that in that sequence. Uh, it's just it's just fun. I mean, it's you know it was a year after Schwarzenegger and Last Action Hero. Yeah, I'm, although I am one of the few defenders of that movie too. I kind of like uh, it. Yeah, if, you know if you want if you want to rag on a. a Kid in an action movie, in a Schwarzenegger movie, that that's the one you rag on. Austin O'Brien, not Edward Furlong. But it's a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's super annoying. That that's he's my Edward Furlong, if you will. Um, but no, I I you know I've always liked True Lies. Yeah, it's fine. I There's just a, that's yeah. Then move on. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. There's a little movie called Titanic. Yeah. That came out. But enough and, about that. You know, <laughs> that movie, it was the movie that wouldn't die from theaters. You're right. And everybody kept going back to it over and over and over again. Did you? No. I did. I saw it once. Are you ready for this? I've yeah. Se- I've seen it once in the theater, mm-hmm. and I just rewatched it on Blu-ray for the second time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it, de- it depend. I saw that movie five times in the theater, and it was a period when you know I I, I saw it opening weekend with friends, uh, then took my parents to see it. Uh, I, I I went with another friend of mine a third time, and I saw it twice by myself hmm. uh, for for different reasons. I went once on Valentine's Day because I was feeling kind of crappy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm That's go a good movie for Valentine's Day. Yeah, I'm going to go see Anti-Valentine's Day. Yeah, it was, yeah, there was that sort of, it was that reasoning behind it. Um, but it just, it, 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 it floored me in many ways every time I saw it in the theater. I, and I, different things would get me about it every time I would see it. Uh, it's one of the few movies that 
produce constant chills in me when I would when I would watch it. Uh, for again, different moments throughout the throughout the, the back half of the movie. I mean, they're, they're just I mean, again moments of technical know-how in the in the film. Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, they built this huge Titanic set and you know put it on you know gimbals and things like that and raised it and everything. So that's you know all that stuff's pretty amazing. But they're just they're they're just things about the sound design. In that oh film, God! The way that he would he would utilize James Horner's score and know just when to elevate it and then to bring it back down and you know utilize it like things are going to be okay and then no it's not. Um, there's a, there's a there's a, a music cue in the movie that always gave me chills when I would see it and it's this uh it, it's it's this bit where the the water really starts really starts coming through the Titanic and starts busting through doors through hallways. Uh, and and things like that, and it's just da na 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 na. It's this, and it just it always gave me the chills. Hmm. This this sequence. There's a there's a bit where uh, the bit where Billy Zane is chasing them around with a gun. Okay, which might seem ridiculous to some people at the time, but it mm-hmm. because of again you talk about characters and the emotional investment that we have in the characters. It doesn't matter that that scene might seem a little silly, that you're having a gunfight in the middle of a sinking ship. That probably didn't happen, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because you just you care for Jack and Rose so much. And there's a bit where he... It's a really beautifully edited moment where Billy Zane like uh, goes over the the railing and he shoots down at the Caprio and Winslet. And the, the bullet hits the water and the shot and the water shoots back up. Yeah. Toward and the the sound design on that, I, I waited I, I sat through the movie waiting for that moment sometimes. And that's impressive. Yeah. It's just it's there there's little moments like that uh always kept bringing me back to the theater. And I and I was I was emotionally invested every time every time I saw it. I'm I, I cried. I can't say I cried. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that I because I'm I'm a big softy. Mm-hmm. I as I've gotten older, I you know cry at the drop of a hat. I'm mostly with Nick on it though, in that not so crazy about the love story. But when they hit the iceberg, it is unreal. Yeah, the energy behind Cameron's camera, the immediacy of it, the just the entire it becomes an entire ninety minute action sequence, and you're watching. Uh, this movie for its craftsmanship, its precision, its tension-inducing roller coaster ride. All of a sudden, yeah. Um, well, Bill Maher actually had the the perfect explanation of why the film was so su- successful. Mm. You ever heard his explanation for it? I don't think so. He said it's a, it's a chick flick that becomes an action movie. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So that's... You get you get every tier. You know, when they talk about tiers and box offices and stuff like that, you get every quadrant. Yeah, into that movie, and it's just, you know it didn't. You, so okay, so you had to sit through an hour and a half with your girlfriend through the love story, which you know, granted, you might not like lo- love story, but you have to at least appreciate this fact that you had for many years the biggest film of all time, the highest grossing film of all time, big director, huge thing, you know, weepy, all these kind of things, were the two central people that were cast in the movie are in many ways arguably the two best actor and actresses of their generation right and i know a lot of people adore this movie um i just it's 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 pretty good i (laughs) i i will say it's like 
three and a half <laughs> out of five yeah. for me. No, I'm definitely I'm definitely four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a pretty remarkable uh, piece of craftsmanship. And yeah. if you don't like, you know, again, we, we bring up the, sort of the dialogue. And, you know, I never like when Billy Zane, you know, looks like. I'd rather be his whore than your wife. Well, that's, well, yeah, that's not the best line in the world. Or, nope. um, well, there's a moment in, there's a moment where I thought Cameron was going to at least, you know, not go the, the typical route. Because there's, there's a moment where Billy Zane actually, like, goes says, open your heart to me, Rose. And it actually feels sincere. That, like Billy Zane's not going to be just the rich asshole character that he clearly eventually becomes in the movie, and mm-hmm. probably always was. Um, but uh, th- you know, there's a moment when they first board the ship, and they're you know she's like, "This is a unique painting from a guy named Picasso," and Billy Zane's like, "Picasso, he'll never mount anything. You watch, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that." I'm just like, "Okay, this, that's know, silly. That, that is that's a little that's just silly." Um, he's like, oh, you know, you know what Picasso's gonna become, so I'm gonna, uh, you know, okay, I get it, Jim. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the scenes between DiCaprio and Winslet, uh, you know, just turn the sound down and just watch them interact. Yeah, and I, I think that stuff, that that that's the the stuff between the two of them. Always, I had no problem. It's not like I sat there for an hour and a half going, okay, get to the iceberg. I never had that feeling. I it was always with their story even though it was there was a, there was a familiarity to it uh i just the, the chemistry between the two of them was was always there the two of them are completely charming in those in in that role uh and again you know we didn't mention it earlier kate winslet has you know an arc of strength in that movie as well that's a great point you know but i got to say scene, first scene they ever filmed by the way the nude scene was the first scene that dicaprio and winslet ever filmed together oh wow yeah, and it was, it was kind of perfect. It was you could say that sort of the Kubrick. It just kind of worked itself out that way, but it kind of worked. The idea that DiCaprio, you know, was a little bit nervous. Yeah, it was that was not in the script either. When he says get on the bed of uh, the couch, mm. that, was, that was a flub, and Cameron left it in. You know, my only issue as we're getting ready to wrap things up is, I just. I grow a little restless throughout most of James Cameron's films. They're not very economical with the running time. They're long. They feel a little overlong sometimes, and that's the case with Titanic. They're just not as compressed and tight as I prefer my action movies to be. Um, I mean, maybe it's just because when we first started this podcast, we start we started out with John McTiernan and Walter Hill, and mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like these guys who know how to tell, for the most part, a hundred minute action movies that don't overstay their welcome. Well, McTiernan's films got long. Yeah. Was like 212, um, Red October is like 215. Uh, I think even the last oh. action hero is like 126 or something like that. Yeah. So his, his movies got long. Walter Hill was always economical. Absolutely. For, for, for absolutely. For, I mean, 48 hours is like 96 minutes, I think, 97 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this then. Is there a director that does constantly push the the boundary of your tolerance for a running time that you don't feel uh, uh, restless with? Definitely Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> okay. With Magnolia, uh, Master, and Inherent Vice, I could easily enjoy 20 or 30 more minutes, even mm-hmm. with Magnolia. Okay. Because, uh, I don't know, I just, I get caught up in in that world, and I want to hang out with these weird characters, and even something like, I, I even feel, you know, Tarantino has also fallen under that unfortunate spell of, like, 
I wouldn't want to say self-indulgence, but to some degree his films are longer than maybe they should be. With the exception of maybe Inglorious Bastards, I don't think that is... Maybe it's two hours and ten minutes, but it certainly doesn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. But I think the Kill Bill movies are overlong, uh, Django's overlong, but, you know, say what you will, maybe... Uh, a simple Elmore Leonard heist movie with Jackie Brown shouldn't be two hours and 20 minutes or something like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel long because I love spending time with these people. Right. Like when it's a hangout movie, hell, I mean, even if, even if before sunset was two and a half hours, I probably wouldn't mind, but mm-hmm. there you go. There's an example of economical where it's 80 minutes, I think. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, no, I'd never, you know, the only, the only time, Running time is an issue for me as at film festivals. You yeah, know, because, I bet. Right, you, you know, you you want to, you know, it, that's the only time I ever really pay attention to running times because like I got to make my schedule. And sometimes, you know, a lot of those movies do run together, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in plots and themes and things like that. And some sometimes you'd rather it only be, you know, 95, 85 minutes and things like that. Uh, but other than that, I never. I, I never have an issue with running time as a constantly running theme within a director's ovoir. Yes, there are films, individual films I look at that could be shorter or could be longer. Uh, but I never like look at Cameron's things and go like, oh, he made another two and a half hour movie. Michael Bay, yes, because his movies <laughs> suck. Uh, his movies, I don't need you know a, a 147-minute Bad Boys 2. You know, that's still one of the biggest, like, I'm sorry, it's how long? That was the first, I think it was the first time I went like, what? That's how long? Um, Yeah, but I feel like we've been having that reaction lately with a lot of blockbusters. Where we we go, why why does this have to be two and a half hours long? Or even some of the comic book movies. uh, You know, when you hear a movie like Suicide Squad, it's going to be 101 minutes. You're like, oh, well, that's economical. And then, of course, it turns out to be 123 minutes and a big giant piece of shit. That's you know, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, the, well, the Batman versus Superman movie that just came out this summer. A perfect example. That might be the, one that Nick said. Yeah. Why is this two hour and forty minutes or whatever? Well, yeah, Batman versus Superman, a perfect another perfect example of a film that eventually get a director's cut on Blu-ray. Oh my god. That is just. You know, I, I had it on, on Movie Madness uh, a couple weeks ago. I had Drew McWeeny on. Right. And we talked about this very subject, about director's cut and about the sort of the the new fashioning of films that never really were good. All of a sudden, now people go and try and play the rediscovery card. They're like, you know something? Superman Returns really was the best Superman movie. And the point you want to take off your glove and smack them. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you're just writing something stupid to get attention. Yeah. Because you don't believe that. You can't possibly believe that. And so, you know, all the people, a lot of people who railed against Snyder for you know, everything that was wrong with Batman versus Superman, all of a sudden now get a cut that's a half hour longer that, quote unquote, explains certain things. Mm. Doesn't mean the movie's good. It just means it explains more. Yeah. I mean, I I don't really understand how Ridley Scott gets to have as many cuts and special editions <laughs> to a movies even like kingdom of heaven and robin hood you know mm-hmm. it's it really it surprises me how often that happens i even think there was one for the counselor a movie i actually really liked but i like the counselor too yeah, yeah. um yeah there's a there's a longer cut of the counselor which i still haven't i haven't watched that cut yet neither I, have i I'm going I to 
Uh, and I haven't seen the Kingdom of Heaven cut either. And yet, that's a cut that a lot of many people say is vastly superior to the right. one that was released in, in the theatrical version. Um, and then, of course, you know all the Blade Runner stuff. We're getting into another area now, but the, the changes in those movies, those various cuts, are so subtle that you would ha- you some people have, most people need to have to explain like what what did he take out again? What did he put in? What what? Oh, he put that shot in. Oh, okay. Um, but with Cameron, the, like the Abyss and Aliens, don't feel like it like indulgent, self indulgent, you know, extra footage cuts. You know, they, 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 there are things that expand upon character. There are things that expand upon certain ideas. Uh, not necessarily bits that just explain more. Explaining more doesn't necessarily make anything better. Yeah, I, I feel no. the same way about Terminator 2. I think, I mean, there's probably a couple of things that are extrain, extraneous, but mm-hmm. I, I actually like when Reese appears to her and they have a, a little moment together. Or there's this whole sequence where I think they're they're kind of giving um, Arnold or the Terminator some repairs, and they take like the chip, chip. out of his brain, mm-hmm. and it becomes this whole confrontational moment between John and Sarah because Sarah obviously wants to destroy this chip right then and there. Mm-hmm. But John sort of has to assert himself and almost become like the authority figure towards his mother, and I really like that exchange. That's that's a really great scene that they didn't necessarily have to cut either. Like, and not and not only that, I, and I like that scene a lot too for two reasons. One, you just mentioned, but two, it also makes the moment at the end when he uh, comes back to life. Essentially, it becomes less of a ex machina, you know, Dewey ex machina moment. Yeah. Because in that sequence, in that, that scene that you that deleted scene you just talked about, uh, the Terminator talks about the extra light you know, power source that he has. So it sets up that moment later right. and it's, it's a throwaway line. It's a throwaway line to not to make you go like, oh that but that's gonna come into play later on. Because you know, it's still throwaway, you forget about it. So when it happens later in the movie, in the theatrical cut, it it feels like a act of God. Moment <laughs> that all of a sudden, oh, he's got an extra power source. He's going to be fine, and he's going to save the day. When in fact, it was always there, and it's established earlier on. I think right. that that's a, that's a, it was a mistake to cut that one scene. I I agree. No bad movie feels too long, and no. when I'm enjoying spending as much time with the people, I don't mind watching yeah. a little bit extra. And you know, it, it's also become cliche amongst. Critics and moviegoers, you know, to, the line is basically like, "Well, it could have been fifteen minutes shorter." And yeah, which, which I, I'm, I I'm probably guilty of that too. It's, it's all about pacing too. Well, it's all about yeah, it's about pacing, and I always want to ask them like, "Okay, well, what what fifteen minutes do you want to cut out of that movie?" Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to like be able to sit down with them with like an editing machine and go like, "Okay, take fifteen minutes out of this movie and tell me how are you going to maintain." The pacing. How are you going to maintain all the uh, integrity of the the screenplay that sets up all these things? What fifteen minutes can you take out of a movie? Sometimes it's easy. Most of the times, it's very very hard. Good points. Now, what was your experience seeing Avatar? Because I really don't have a good memory of it, to be honest. Because it, I saw it, I thought it was cool looking. I enjoyed the spectacle of it, but I did not care less about what was happening. It I, I it's the only James Cameron movie I don't like. 
Yeah. It's the only James Cameron movie I didn't have a reaction to. And I, part of the reaction, I think, is the fact that it it did feel like one giant special effect. It did have, exactly. it did have that feeling that... That's what I said. When I, I, the scenes that I like are the scenes where the, actually the humans are involved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those, those are the scenes I think that are the best. Like, I'd rather watch Stephen Lang, you know, do his thing in the flesh than see Sam Worthington... You know, <laughs> dance around as the Navi or whatever they're they're called, uh, and Zoe Saldana. Sorry to say, she's not interesting in any color. Um, you Guardians of the Galaxy fans, um, she's just not. <laughs> she's just not. Uh, and 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 a lot of it to me felt like uh, Cameron's greatest hits package. Yeah, totally. Like like, the, like yes, when you get to like the like action, a mashup. Yeah, when you get to the action beats to the end, yes, this is stuff that Cameron does really well. Uh, but the story is very is you know is convoluted. I always felt that uh, the the motives were either you know, too extreme, like the military stuff, mm-hmm. or too dare I say hippieish on the part of the Navi. It just seemed like there was a, you know there was a compromise to be made somewhere, and nobody wanted to make it, and <laughs> and that really it kind of put me off to like all the characters, and then we like the yeah. Na- like like Navi you could come you could meet them halfway. And you could come to some sort of compromise, and everyone could be happy and live and, you know, survive. Uh, but the Navi, oh, we got this tree of life, and we can't touch the tree, and oh. the military's like, we want it all. You know, and it's just like, I'm like, okay, so why don't you just fight already and stop talking about it? You're going to do what you're going to do. I don't care about the, the, you know, the dandelions that fly and, you know, how you make love with your tail. I don't care. <laughs> okay. And Sam Worthington is just, you know, <laughs> there's a reason he's, you know, animated and has to be animated in that movie because he's not, he's, he's about as bland as they come. And that was, yeah. in, you know, just about everything post Avatar. Um, yeah. No, Wasn't like, he in Terminator Salvation? Ugh, yes, he was. Oh, God. Yeah. That's yes, right. he was. Uh, and <sighs> yeah, and and I haven't seen the director. I and mean, here's another movie that has a director's cut. And I hear that there are elements of the director's cut that help flesh mm. out, no pun intended, certain aspects of the plotting that make it a little more interesting. Maybe not mm. all completely satisfying, but a little more interesting. Uh, stuff about Sam Worthington, like what the state of the condition of the Earth is in. There's some stuff early in the movie, from what I understand. Um, I I was gonna watch it for this thing, but I didn't think we were gonna spend a lot of time on Avatar, frankly. Since no, I we don't need to. Really liked it, <laughs> um, so I didn't want to, you know, because I think the other director's cuts are far more interesting to talk about. I, again, we can use the words technically proficient. Yes. It is as three D movies go, it's pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no denying that, and I can understand people wanting to see the spectacle. Uh, but there's again, you know, Michelle Rodriguez is kind of playing Vasquez. You know, it's just yeah. there. Again, it felt like a kind of a greatest hits mashup, and Cameron's done better, and it makes me incredibly sad. Me too. That he's concentrating full steam ahead on three more now Avatar movies. Uh, I don't know where you're going to take this world and these characters. Uh, unless you come up with some gloriously intergalactic battle that we've never seen before on screen, which knowing Cameron is very possible. Well, he's good at the sequel. Right, that is a very good, excellent point. Uh, but can he bring the emotional half that we've been talking about? Right. And that's, that's something that is drastically missing from Avatar. Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, I just think he is a very, very good filmmaker that... 
unfortunately, kind of believed his own hype after winning an Oscar. You know, I, I, I mean, his vision and utilization of CGI sort of collided in the in unsatisfying ways, especially story-wise, with with Avatar. And now he just wants to focus on this universe that I couldn't care less about. I mean, I'm not, I'm not excited about Avatar two, three, and four. <laughs> Yeah, neither neither am I. But it would it's, it would be hypocritical of me to if I was if I'm to defend Zemeckis during his mo- his period of uh, experimentation with animation and you know, other aspects of special effects and stuff. To you know, say we can say everything we want about Avatar and the point that you're making right now about him believing his own hype and being at the Oscar, winning eleven Oscars and being there, winning the best director prize, going, "I'm the king of the world." Woo! Which is a joke. It's just a poorly timed and executed one. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I mean, he could have not done anything. He could have retired after Titanic. He had the biggest film in the world. He had just tied the most Oscars anyone had won up to that point. Still only held by Titanic, Ben Hur, and Return of the King. Eleven Oscars for all three of them. Jeez. Uh, and you know, but he put it. You know, he okay. He went a little exploring. He you know he did do some documentaries, Aliens of the Deep and Ghosts of the Abyss. Or you know, exploring the the ocean, which are interesting in their own, you know, in their own way. Uh, but he he went for it. I mean, what, whatever we think about Avatar, it, it's not it's not a lazy film. No, you know, I He's mean, got one hell of a work ethic. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, the screenplay is not up to you know, what we want uh, in, in many in many respects. But you can't you can't look at it and go. Man, he phoned that one in. No, that's that's very true. I mean, he's had some tremendous accomplishments throughout his career. I mean, he molded Ripley into one hell of an action hero. He made Schwarzenegger a household name. Um, and he's always had an interesting story to tell in, you know, one of my favorite genres, science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I give him props for that. I'm just mainly disappointed in the direction that he's gone as of late. You know, I don't want to see him do sequels to his own stuff again. I want to see him tackle something, uh, another original idea. Yeah, something more personal. Yes. Let's have him go underwater again. What the hell? <laughs> the <laughs> no, Abyss too. No, no, no uh, he got <laughs> advice from Sharon Stone to stay away from the water. Well, that's right. Remember, yeah. the Muse in 1999. Stay away from the water. <laughs> any, that's any, one of the... Anytime she interacts with a director, it's really funny. In that, in that yeah, show. those are, those are her best moments. I mean, I yeah. think Muse is pretty is pretty funny, uh, but those moments where Scorsese and Cameron mm-hmm. show up are really funny. Yeah. So, what would be your top three James Cameron movies as we wrap it up here? Top three James Cameron movies. Uh, Aliens would be number one, of course. That's an easy call. Um, I would probably go with Terminator Two as number two. Uh, and number three, always tricky. It is tricky. Uh, yeah, and it's one of those things where ask me tomorrow it might be different. Um, but I'm gonna go with the abyss as my number three. Very similar, but just in a different order. <laughs> number one is Terminator Two. Number two is the abyss, and number three is Aliens. There you go. Yeah, I will say I do like Aliens more and more upon rewatches. So you should. You should. It's it's. it's I a, know. It's a pretty remarkable achievement that movie. I think I still like the first one more. But anyway, 
<laughs> we did read most of this podcast. That's, that's, that's true. Sure. That's we, very true. There's, there's degrees of like uh, to these movies, uh, and I like True Lies more than you do. But well, other yeah. than that, I think, uh, and I like Titanic a bit more than you do. But again, degrees of like. There's no real dislike other than our Avatar mm-hmm. scent. Yeah, I think I just always go back to one of my first interactions with you when we gave our best films, our best and worst films of 2000. That might have been the first time we were on the radio, maybe together? Together, I think, yes. And what when, you what had, when you had Waking Life on your worst list, I just wanted, uh, to, I just wanted to punch you through the phone. Uh, <laughs> the movie still sucks. No, you're wrong. <laughs> Pretentious. No. Yeah. Okay, I have, I, granted, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you this. I have not seen that movie since 2000. I'm a different person now. That's true. That's uh, true. Link, link letters stuff, obviously. Uh, some of the later stuff I've really liked a lot. Uh, not Boyhood, but uh, you're crazy. I would. I, was, uh, I don't like Boyhood. You're crazy. It's a haphazard movie. Uh, um, look at the period where he filmed Fast Food Nation. That's the alcoholic sequence. Anyway, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's ups and downs. Ups and downs. The link letter. But uh, Waking Life, I'll maybe someday I'll revisit that. I love Scanner Darkly, so it's not the style of the movie. Clearly, yeah, it's I can just philosophy. Bullshit. No, I don't. I, I don't necessarily. I find it interesting. That's. But yeah. you know what? This <laughs> this will slap you across the face a little bit. The reason why I probably love this movie so much is that I had um, a screening pass to see it at the Chicago International Film Festival. Um, and my dad was dying. He was on I, his I deathbed. I do remember that. I yeah. do remember that. And, and <laughs> him telling me, I want you to go see it. Like, because I was terrified to leave the hospice. Right. You know, but he's, he, he instructed me. He's like, I want you to go out and have a good time. I know you want to see this movie. Please go and see it. So... Yeah. That's a huge reason and you know because they do talk about death in the movie it's mm-hmm. th- yeah th- it's there's a reason why it's you know it's a favorite of mine and that's that's well, it's a really, <laughs> personal it's a reasons. Really, it's a really important distinction and this is one of these things you know as film critics you know that you know people who talk about movies as often as we do um it, it, there's really important distinctions between separating the personal from the art. Yeah, in a way, and we can completely understand one another. When I say I, that I have this extra additional touch to Aliens, and I can certainly appreciate you having this personal experience with Waking Life, amongst other movies as well. Um, it's you know, it, it was one of these things that we talked about on, on my podcast too, where you you know, just because a movie has a personal connection doesn't necessarily mean it's great for everybody. No, that's absolutely true. It's not to take away from our experiences. Uh, it's just when you talk about movie, you have to you have to know when to to bridge the two things. Like I if, like I could leave out all the personal stuff about Aliens and still tell you why it's a masterpiece. Uh, and I'm sure you could do the same for Waking Life, yeah. as well. Um, but these these are the things that make dare I say humanize film critics a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're not like James Cameron; these technical automatons that are just looking for the most technically proficient aspects of film, that we have a heart and a soul the way we are very much present in James Cameron's work. Uh, and I think that that's, there's, there's an absolute connection between, uh, between the two. Well, I think Ebert in particular, when I would read his reviews, and he would get very personal, 
and he would bring up something that maybe he experienced directly or something that occurred to him. Like, you know, you read his review of Synecdoche, New York. It really is more about sure, sure. his own feelings and, and, and life experience and yeah. how it really affected him. And I that's the type of writing I like even more than the viewpoint of what makes this film great, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's why I wasn't always as self-assured as, as, as you know, a lot of people that have, are members of the Chicago Film Critics Society, for, for one thing, is that I always had a hard time separating. I always had a hard time of, like, you know, my, my own personal experience is going to inform regardless. That's, right. that's a given. But sometimes it would cloud my ability to see the flaws and yeah. judge it accordingly, you mm-hmm. know, and critique it. Well, there's, I mean, again, that's another thing that you mentioned, you know, Ebert, you know, we're all, I, I said this, I said this on my podcast too, is that, you know, when people are just sort of reevaluating old movies, you know, and whatnot, and my, my point is always, I want to tell them, is like, mo- the movies don't change, you do. Okay. Yeah. The movie is still the movie that you saw 20 years ago. It's just, you're a different person now. So you're going, you're experiencing you've experienced so much more. Like, you know, you see E.T. when you're seven years old. E.T. is a movie about your best friend leaving. Mm-hmm. You know? You grow, put 20 years behind you after that. E.T. is about somebody dying. E. Oh, is God, about, yes. E.T. is about some, you losing somebody. I had, to re- I had to really contain myself when Kyle and I saw that at the drive-in just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Because it was like, it was a different, I was a different person. It was a different experience for me seeing yeah. that. And, was, you know, I, you know, I never obviously went through a divorce, but that's clearly where that movie mm-hmm. originates from. Yeah. So if you've been through a divorce, you can certainly, you know, that's a movie about your dad leaving or your, or, or a parent leaving. Uh, and like I said, if you, you grow older, it's about someone you love leaving you in some capacity, whether it be through just leaving or death or you going off someplace else. Uh, you're, you're, it's a part of you that's, going to be missing for forever uh, right. after this and so it's 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 important to you know to realize that you're the you're the person that's changing not the art the art is what it is and it's going to mean something different to two different people in the room because of their own personal experiences so it's important to have those biases on your sleeve well, you know, it's something. Sometimes it gets tricky when it can be political and whatnot. But it doesn't. That doesn't bother me as long as the political stuff is coming from a point of decency more than sort mm-hmm. of, like, you know, "quote unquote" politics. Uh, but if you've if you've never had someone in your life die, or you've never gone through a divorce, or you've never ha- suffered heartbreak, God forbid, movies are going to be different to different people. Um, I, I remember, I mean, a, a movie as trivial as Superbad. Uh, a bunch of friends of mine went to a theater, and a friend of mine, his girlfriend at the time, uh, completely denigrated the two characters, you know, Seth and Evan, in the movie. Mm. And here, my, my, at least one of my friends of mine, are like, oh, we were Seth and Evan. So, <laughs> kiss my ass. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much for another great discussion and a very good director. Well, I appreciate always being asked, my friend. It's uh, it's great to to share this time, to, you know, to talk 
uh, wax rhapsodic, if you will, <laughs> about uh, just film, whether film we films we like, films we dislike, whatever it is. Clearly, the, these podcasts that you do are about love, uh, and that's clearly where we want to come from them, or at least you know, and if we could bring one person into the fold on any of these directors that you're talking about, uh, then you're doing God's work in a way. Well, that's that's great to hear, man. And I, I, I'm so happy you have your own show. Like I mentioned early on, I was skeptical about a podcast where, you know, especially in um, in the first half, it is mainly monologuing. Because most podcasts I've subscribed to and really love are conversations, and it's always two people mm-hmm. or it's a couple of co-hosts. But I, I was instantly taken with it because i think you are really gifted at at conversation whether if it's in front of a microphone by yourself uh almost hard hairy style um (laughs) or with uh, a great you know guest recurring guest like sergio so yeah i I really appreciate that and you know i hope people you know continue to, to come the numbers seem to be growing on the podcast more people uh listening certainly some repeat listeners uh, and gotten some feedback here and there about it, but it's it's you know it's you know people tell me you know sometimes that podcast should be shorter, which I just go well. <laughs> the Directors Club podcast is about three hours all the time, so yep. I don't think that's necessarily true. I always try to shoot for two hours, but it always winds up being closer to three. <laughs> I know, and and here we go. We're now we're back into the fold about running time, and uh, I you know I always think that when I go back to what I've said about you know growing up that. You know, can you can you really tell a story in ninety minutes? I don't know if you can. You, I don't know. Um, and I think that sometimes I think, you know, even when I was writing more regularly, and I would write whether it be something about box office or critic watch or you know even reviews or whatnot, I would never worry about word count. I would just I want to make sure that I got the message out that I was yeah. trying to get. Um, I wasn't trying to be bloated or to make you make anyone feel like I was, you know, trying to show off or anything like that. I always just I always make a point for the reader and now the listener to know that I'm giving them as much information as I possibly can about any particular subject. And, you know, so I, I pride that when I do the box office segment and then I always try to have, you know, I, I, I've always tried to have some sort of guest and Sergio has become a biweekly guest, which is great. And that's going to continue, uh, in, you know, as long, as long as we possibly can, uh, the next week we're going to have Steve Procopion again to talk about Fantasia Fest. Oh so yeah, he's always hoping, great. Hoping to bring in some more stuff about people at film festivals. We're going to have uh, talk about the Bruce Campbell Festival that's coming into town on uh, Chicago in a couple of weeks. Oh, are they showing um, Don't Breathe? They are. Mm. Uh, I think it's the closing night. It's, it's either opening or closing night, mm. that movie. That's worth taking a look at, speaking of Stephen Lang. I, uh, I'm, I saw the trailer... Before um, I saw Lights Out, and I was like, hmm. I'll, 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 I'll say what I said at South by Southwest. Starts out a little clunky. First okay. half hour is a little clunky, and then it finds its finds its footing. All right. So that's worth looking at. And, yeah, I, so that you know, that's what I've, with your encouragement, I've tried to do with the podcast and try to keep it going and motivate myself to keep it going because I'm, you know, I'm sitting here looking at it, <laughs> my screen with one of the podcast interviews up, and I still have about 40 minutes to edit. Uh, oh, that'll happen. Oh, it'll it'll happen. But it's just I look at it and I'm like, oh, you know. But uh, I always try to have it out for every week, and I I, I wanted to you know, people to 
I don't want it to sound the same as every other podcast. I'm glad that you're on the network, which is now playing network.net. <laughs> Check out Eric's show as well as Patrick's show and Bill with supporting characters, um, Fresh Perspective, and of course, Jim Hankey returns as well this week with Vinyl Emergency. Do you have an episode coming in a couple days? Yeah, I will have one this week. We're gonna okay. have Sergio is back on this week, right. and uh, we're also talk with my friend Eric Laws, and we're having a, a very lengthy chat about Suicide Squad uh, this weekend. And uh, that's that's. Let me just say, it's a fun chat. I can't wait. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Eric. This was great. Um, and everybody, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email with any of your suggestions, comments, questions directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and the next episode will be on Zucker, Abrahams, and Zucker, the complete opposite of James Cameron with very economical running times Um, and we're just going to sort of deconstruct the parody film genre uh, in general with the film junk guys, at least two of them anyway, the the ones that aren't as busy. <laughs> Frank and Sean from Film Junks. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts and one of the reasons why this podcast exists. So can't wait for that discussion, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, Eric. Thank you, man. That's the one you rag on, Austin O'Brien, not Edward Furlong. But it's a movie! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>